of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Peter Mattock. Pete is the Director of Maths and Numeracy in a secondary school in the Midlands. And he is also a secondary mastery lead for the EMS Maths Hub and Maths SLE and PD lead. Flipping out, Pete, you've got most of the alphabet covered there. Pete is also the author of a brand new book called Visible Maths. Now, I have had the pleasure of hearing Pete speak at several maths conferences over the years, and I've always found his sessions thought-provoking. And I'll tell you what, the same is very much true for his book. As we discuss in the interview, this is certainly not an approach to teaching mathematics that I am in any way experienced in, or if I'm entirely honest, that I'm completely comfortable with. But it has certainly got me thinking. So, in what turned out to be a wide-ranging conversation, Pete and I chatted about the following things and plenty more besides. Firstly, Pete does the earliest ever plug for a book in a podcast, managing to mention it in his first sentence. We then dive into what is Pete's favourite failure and what did he learn from the experience. And then we go deep into a fascinating discussion about how Pete planned out a sequence of lessons on fractions for a mixed attainment year 7 group. And we go off on loads of tangents along the way, covering things like how before why and the issue of differentiation. Then I quiz Pete on his approach to running a maths department, including the mistakes he's made along the way, his marking policy, what the departmental meetings look like, joint approaches to topics, and his tip for any aspiring heads of department listening. And then it's time to take a deep dive into Pete's book, Visible Maths, where we focus on Pete's approach to three topics, order of operations, division of fractions, and completing the square. Now, the images Pete uses and talks about are available to look at now in the show notes, and I strongly recommend you check them out either before or during or after listening to this conversation. Finally, Pete reflects on an important book, something he's changed his mind about, and what he wished he'd known when he first started teaching that he knows now. Now, once again, and I know I always say this, I loved this conversation. It left me with plenty to think about and reflect on, including the classics of How Before Why, Mixed Attainment, and my new thing, Sense Making. So stick around at the end of the conversation where I mull over this in my takeaway. Two quick plugs before we carry on. There are 20 free diagnostic math revision quizzes for Key Stage 2 SATs, GCSE Foundation and GCSE Higher, which are now available at diagnosticquestions.com forward slash revision 2019. Just go there, check out the questions and quizzes. You can use them in class with no technology whatsoever. You can set them for homework. You can set up a revision schema work, whatever you like. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, but it's diagnosticquestions.com forward slash revision 2019. And also, if you are interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of intelligent, engaged, and quite simply incredible listeners, then you may know that I'm offering the opportunity to sponsor episodes of the podcast. Honestly, listening figures are going through the roof. It's quite frightening, and particularly if you're a company or something that usually 
uh, advertises or has stands at conferences, we all know that can be quite expensive. And, and how many people do you actually get to speak to over the course of a day or whatever? Get in contact with me might be an, another avenue to reach even more people in a more effective way. So drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to discuss the packages available. Anyway, I shall deprive you no longer as I introduce Pete Mattock. Now, make sure you have access to the three diagrams for the second half of this conversation because my descriptions of them are pretty ropey to say the least. And talking of ropey, I don't know what's going on with the Wi-Fi in the Midlands, but about halfway through when Pete's discussing running a department, there are several occasions where the audio goes dead. Now, I've done my very best to tidy this up, and I'm pleased to say that all is resolved by the time we get to talking about Pete's book. So do not despair and please stick around. Once again, why not treat this as a desirable difficulty where you've got to fill in the blank of what Pete was about to say. Anyway, enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Pete, so we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Yeah, it was a challenging one, this one, because there are, you know, there are so many good numbers out there. Uh, I had a long, hard think about zero. Um, in fact, the book that I wrote originally was going to focus a lot more on zero. And so I had a long, hard think about that one. Uh, pi is always a good one as well. I like pi a lot and its relation to so many different things in the natural world. Uh, but in the end, I had to settle for one. Um, one's been with me an awful long time actually starting when i was a kid and i was a goalkeeper um in football and so one was my number i think even back then i liked to be able to stand back and look at things uh and so i played in goal and that was my number and that was my lucky number as it was growing up and then obviously when you learn a bit of maths and you learn about things like the multiplicative identity and one fulfilling that role and it's sort of multiplication is my favorite operation as well um, and sort of one fulfills quite a unique role in multiplication, being the identity. So, yeah, in the end, it was one that I, that I plumped on and one that I decided was going to be my favourite number, and that's why. That's a, a great answer, and I think that's the earliest ever plug for a book on the podcast, that, Peter. So, <laughs> first sentence, that's some going, that. Congratulations. <laughs> I have um, a corporate seal now, Dave. What can I say? <laughs> All right, second question. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? And I see, I, I didn't know how to take this one because as a, as a secondary school student, I actually much, much prefer physics to maths, and I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. Um, so, I don't think I had one as a secondary school student at all, really. Uh, that might have been to do with the way that I was taught maths, which wasn't bad. You know, they, they did they did their job and I came out of the other side of it, having got good grades and all the rest of it. But it didn't really, I didn't really have a favourite topic in maths at that point. When I got to uni, um, I didn't go to uni originally to do maths. But when I eventually did start doing maths at university, uh, I sort of fell in love with analysis and later on number theory. I just loved this this idea of taking really careful, really small logical steps in an argument and being able to put all that together to to create you know this chain of reasoning that would tell you something 
something new about numbers and how they worked and what relationships were between them. So uh, I really and sort of my I didn't do particularly well at university, my undergraduate degree. But the two things that I got first classes in in terms of the modules were number theory and communicating maths. And it was those two that sort of really resonated with me. And obviously communicated maths leads to becoming a teacher quite naturally. But the number theory was always one that I sort of really uh, enjoyed, really sort of played with, as it were. That's fascinating, that, Pete. And I'll tell you what, I'm always interested in um, in teachers' early experiences of, of the subject. And you mentioned there in secondary school that I think you said you, the teachers did their job and you came through through it fine. Um, well, can you dig into that a little bit deeper? What, what, what was what was their kind of style of teaching? And, and has that in any way influenced how you approach your your way of teaching? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I had I had some really nice teachers. I really enjoyed um, learning from them, really enjoyed sort of the relationship I had with them, a couple of great ones I can still remember now. Uh, but this was the, you know, the, the time of, of uh, GCSEs being just a few years old. It was sort of, I suppose, them getting used to having to teach to that assessment as it was. Uh, and so, you know, they, they did. They, they taught us what we needed to know for GCSE and what uh, and how we, you know, and built that knowledge up over five years. It was mostly what you might consider traditional, which is no bad thing in terms of, you know, they would sit us down and show us something and we would do exercises about it from a textbook or from something else that they designed and created. Um so it was all well and good, and I was good at it, ultimately. So, you know, I, there was an enjoyment factor from that point in that I could do most of it most of the time. Um, and so I, I got on with them, and they got on with me quite nicely. Uh, but it was nothing, you know, there was nothing to really inspire you to look deeper, as it were. And it wasn't necessarily their fault. You know, I don't want to seem, make them seem like the bad because I really like them. But uh, there was nothing within it to really inspire you to go deeper or to wonder about it a bit more. Uh, and I had my own interests at that point. Like my uh, much preferred physics at the time, I was really into sort of quantum theory and particle theory and uh, also astronomy you know the big mysteries of the of the time as it was in the in the mid to late 90s um and so i was much more interested in what maths could do for me in that area than than actually exploring maths itself Got particularly it. at secondary school Got it. I mean, maybe if they'd used a bit of visual maths, then the things would be looking different. But I'll do the plug-in. I'll do the plug-in. Well, I, got there, you I got there eventually, didn't I? So. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, question number three then, Pete. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher? Yeah, it's, uh, teaching wasn't actually my first career choice either. So that was always an interesting one. And I'm sure we'll get to that at some point as well when I describe how uh, I get, you know, how my career's gone to date. Uh, I think probably something that would allow me to still either solve problems or create arguments or uh you know figure things out so um maybe you know, i'd probably have to go back to school and, and up my grades on this for something like this but maybe a doctor of internal medicine you know figuring out what's wrong with somebody figuring out the disease that somebody has based on symptoms and tests maybe a lawyer you know, creating arguments, looking at evidence, trying to 
gets interpret things in ways that helps my client or helps you know prosecute or whatever else something around those lines but i think definitely something that allows me to to reason and think and create arguments solve problems that sort of area uh, i think is something that, that would that would still draw me in no matter what i was doing got it fantastic well you've alluded to it a little bit there people now, now take us through your career to date then where, where did it all start and how, how did you get to where you are now yeah so um actually the, my first experience of teaching was in the army cadet force uh, i was in the cadet forces from sort of 13 all the way through till when i went to uni and slightly after when i went to uni at 18 um and so actually that was sort of my career path um as it were i was going to go into the army as an officer and and all was going to be rosy, but for several reasons, well, for a couple of reasons, that didn't happen. Um, there were some medical issues and what have you, which is, you know, it's, there's no issues with, around them now. But at the time, they they stopped me going in. Um, so then I went to uni to do physics, had enjoyed theoretical physics, like I said, and uh, had sort of this vague notion of, of just going into pure academia and in the theoretical physics world. Uh, and then got to uni and they made me do lab and I hate lab. I'm sorry, physics teachers out there, but I absolutely can't stand, uh, laboratory work at all. Uh, so it, it's got to be theoretical for me. So yeah, so I dropped lab, um, and picked up an algebra unit instead. And so it went from a physics degree with a bit of maths in it to a maths degree with a bit of physics in it, you know, classical mechanics, that sort of thing. And then I continued down the, down the maths route, really. Um, and then, so I was doing my maths degree, and I was also doing a bit of work with the cadet forces still as an adult instructor. And, you know, I was good at it. And I was good at teaching. I was good at teaching the younger cadets. Uh, so I decided to, to sort of look at that area i did the student associate scheme while i was at university which got me into schools you know supporting and delivering a few lessons here and there enjoyed that that seemed to go all right uh so then i got it in my head that i'd go and try and do a pgce um having applied around a bit uh, decided to go back to leicester um and I scraped onto the PGCE, truth be told, because my, because my, you know, my, my results from undergraduate weren't great. Um, but, and, you know, the, uh, my PGCE tutor at the time, um, Jeff Tennant, Dr. Jeff Tennant, who, uh, was brilliant, to be fair to him. Um, he gave me what he still says when we talk was the hardest interview that he's ever given anybody uh, to try and sort of get out, you, you know, was I actually serious about this? Um, but he saw something, so I went to Leicester, did PGCE, um, and then, yeah, from there, so went down, went back to Oxford because my undergraduate was at Reading, so I wanted to be sort of between Leicester, where my family was and where I'd grown up, and sort of Reading and London, where most of my uni friends had either settled or gone on to. Um, so I went down to Oxford, taught there for four and a bit years. I did a, in my first school, um, did a year and a bit in that as second department, so did basically three years, and then got promoted internally to second in department for a year and a bit. Um, 
moved on January. We're talking January, what, 2011 now. Moved on to my first head of department role, which was in actually the centre of Oxford. Uh, well, just south of the centre of Oxford. Um, in a newly opened academy, Oxford Spires Academy, which had replaced uh, a school that was on the same site as where well. it was one of these converter academies where the school previously had been through difficulty uh, and the academy had, had come in to replace it as it was uh, so that was my first sort of head of maths role did that for three years or so and got involved at that time with uh, teacher training a bit as well um, so I sat on the the board for uh, the local teacher training institutes um, we had students from both Oxford Junior and Oxford Brooks come in to train with us. It's where I met Anne Watson and, and uh, John Mason across my two schools down there. Um, but then, much like yourself, you know, young family and, uh, you know, uh, cost of living increases, etc. And we decided that we were going to come back to the Midlands, a lot cheaper to live. We had access to free babysitting service in my <laughs> mum <laughs> so uh so yeah came back to the midlands in sort of uh what would it have been december 2013 january 2014 so three years or so um after as being a head of department in oxford and then yeah came back up here did, and i've been basically running mass departments up here ever since that five years uh in my school did a short stint as um as sort of head of maths and business and IT at the Nuneaton Academy, which at the time was going through difficulty, and then went into uh, the school I'm in now. Uh, um, and sort of really, except for a little bit in Oxford, it was it was the school I'm in now that's allowed me to sort of grow as a teacher and expand where I am. So um, when I was in my sort of last year in Oxford, I did a little, little bit for a company that was called Stuck for Schools. Uh, which is now called, I think, Maths Hub Help, something like that. And they were producing um, CPD videos for teachers uh, to go on to Pearson's Active Teach platform. Uh, and so I did some work for them. And that was actually quite interesting because that was, um, I mean, it must have been, what, 2013, mid to late 2013 or so. And that was uh, really the first time anybody had pushed me to look at my teaching practice and sort of put it on a level where I could communicate what I do to others in the classroom, you know, and, make, and exemplify that um, on video for teachers to look at and teachers to learn from. So, uh, and uh, this was, I mean, obviously at the time when, noise was first really being made or just slightly before that noise had been really made about cpa and and the approaches from singapore and things like that uh, and so pearson were very sort of keen on having this sort of concrete pictorial abstract lead into their cpd videos and i hadn't really thought about maths like that a lot uh, before then so it forced me to sort of think in that area and I got interested in it. Uh, and so I did those videos. Some of them are still on the Active Teach platform now. Uh, and then, like I say, when I moved up to back to Leicestershire and started my job in my current school, I had a bit of breathing space to sort of think about that and put those ideas more into practice 
where I where I was. Um, I, I got involved in Twitter. I got involved in um, you know mass conferences and, ta- and presenting at mass conferences, talking about mass education a lot more. Uh, and then privately, you know, just reading things and uh, reading research online and things like that. Uh, and yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the last sort of four or five years or so now. Uh, did the NCT MPD League course that opened up some new avenues and then did uh, the specialist, the, master, the secondary mastery specialist course over the last few years. And obviously that's um, hooked me up with some really good people in mass education, people like Pete Griffin and Steve Lomax and what have you, uh, and, and, and influenced me there. So, yeah, it's, I suppose it's fairly, fairly normal career path, you know, second department, head department, few extra bits and pieces around the sides of it. Nothing, nothing particularly special, but I've just looked into a few chances along the way in terms of creating these videos and being able to go on these sort of courses that, uh, that has developed me in areas that I wouldn't necessarily have expected when I first started. Oh, that's, it's, it's fascinating that Peter and, it, and it's going to lead in nicely to sort of some of the things we're going to touch upon in, in this conversation particularly running different heads of departments in in, uh, in different circumstances um, your introduction to this visual way of approaching mathematics obviously going to uh, form a big part of our conversation and also and also Twitter the way you use Twitter and the, the people you interact with and the positives and negatives all things that we're going to we're going to dig into but before we go there um, the, the question I always ask my guests and it's my favourite question and it's that's for you to to choose a favorite failure so a lesson that you've taught either recently or in the past that didn't go according to plan and crucially what did you learn from the experience yeah yeah it wasn't my favorite at the time i can tell you (laughs) um so this is the scene i'm in i'm new head of math oxford spies academy i've probably been there about a year um and we got we have ofsted you know we're we're a new school um where we we converted from a school that had been in difficulty in the past so Ofsted was always going to come and have a look at us so they're in and you know I've been teaching there maybe I'd say maybe a year just over just under something like that Uh, and they come they wander into my year 11 class where I am desperately desperately trying to convey some sense of algebraic fractions and how and calculations with algebraic fractions and so, you know, I started as, as is, is quite normal and you would often do with looking at um, numerical fractions, you know, thinking about how do we add numerical fractions? How do we multiply them? You know, trying to remind them of this prior knowledge and squat. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Blank faces all around. This prior knowledge just wasn't there at all. Now, the previous year, we'd, I mean, it was an interesting one. We'd had this year 11 group when they're in year 10. Uh, we'd had them split into three bands of three, uh, which wasn't ideal timetabling wise. You know, it wasn't our ideal model. And a lot of these kids had been sort of mixed in with with all sorts of prior attainment. And the school wasn't really set up to teach mixed ability in that way at the time. Uh, and I knew virtually nothing about it as a new head of department. So, um, so yeah, clearly, the, you know, the sort of fraction knowledge that they should have got before year 11 had just passed them by completely. Um, 
And so here I was trying to teach algebraic fractions in front of an offset inspector to kids that had no knowledge of how numerical fractions worked. So obviously it was a complete bust. And in the end, I just had to say, right, look, we're just going to have to leave this algebraic fractions nonsense aside. And we're just going to have to go back to working with numerical fractions. Let's look at again at how we add them, how we multiply them. Uh, and, you know, let's try and, and, get to that point where you understand a little bit more about how numerical fractions work. And if we can do that, then maybe we'll come back to algebraic fractions another time. Um, and obviously, you know, I mean, you can imagine that in front of an Ofsted inspector, <laughs> six years into teaching, first full year as a head of department, and you're saying, right, you know, let's ditch the plan completely. Uh, so it was with some trepidation that I went into the feedback afterwards. But actually, you know, they were very fair about it. They, you know, uh, the the guy, it was a guy who um, who, had in, who looked at the lesson and gave me the feedback, said, you know, you did the right thing by, uh, by just ditching the lesson. It clearly wasn't going to work. And, you know, you reacted to what was in front of you. And that was the right thing to do. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> got, got away with that one a little bit at least but you know in terms of, of what it taught me uh, obviously taught me some messages about assessing prior knowledge before uh before attempting anything quite so daunting as that or the importance of just making sure you know where kids are at and that you're trying to build on a firm foundation anyway probably taught me to be a little bit less scared of Hofstede and a little bit more willing to just you know abandon the plan and and go with what you know your kids need at that point if you've if you've identified that's what they need uh, in the knowledge that you can always come back to something later or even if you don't come back to it well then actually that's not as bad as trying to flounder on for an hour and at the end of it then walking away not knowing anything better than when they started uh, so yeah that's probably the lesson I learned from that and as you can probably imagine it wasn't my favorite failure at the time but I look back on it now and I think that was actually all right. It was all right. <laughs> you know, that was that was a useful process to have been through. It's a, it's a great one, that Peter. There's a, there's a few things from that. I mean, they, I tend to drop a Dylan William quote every every couple of episodes <laughs> at least. And, it, and it, one of my favourites from from Dylan is he says, well, "We have to start where the learner is, not where we want the learners to be." And I think that that rings true there. You can plan the best lesson yeah. in the world. You've got a wonderful lesson on algebraic fractions lined up, but the kids aren't there. They're not they're not ready for it. They haven't got that foundational knowledge in place and that's where for me kind of formative assessment comes into play assessing these prerequisites before you go anywhere near the new topic and also the big lesson there and I think this is a it's one that it took me many years to learn and that is to be willing to abandon the plan that I've, I've been there so many times where you just persist thinking it'll get better this it'll get better it'll get, if I just keep going if I if I keep saying it a different way if I give them another example another example it'll get better I'm, I'm gonna stick with it and often that's when you're being watched or when you've spent a long time preparing a resource or an activity and you're desperate for the kids to do it but as you say if, if the foundational knowledge isn't there you're flogging a dead horse and it, it's it's, <laughs> it's going to be frustrating for everyone involved so i think that's a great great choice for favorite failure that peter be it, you know the, the two big lessons for me there make sure you assess prior knowledge and, and be prepared to abandon things if, if things aren't going to plan so yeah yeah that's, that's the point you know i you say it took a while to learn 
that lesson. I think that was what it took for me to learn that lesson. A baptism of fire, if anybody yes. would say so. But it's, that's what it is. That's what it took. So Fantastic. Yeah. Superb. Okay, well, what I want to turn to now is, is planning a lesson. Now, um, over the last kind of couple of episodes on the podcast, we, we've had um, we've had maths teachers. So we've had Naveen on here. We've had Gemma Sherwood on here. And it's I'm always dead lucky to speak to maths teachers um, to learn about their planning process. And I'm particularly interested to speak to you on this, Peter, because, again, I'm, I'm, I'm interested if we teach the same, if we teach differently, if you've gone through any changes and so on and so forth. So if you can just take us through um, your planning process and if you can just describe in as much detail as you can the class, their kind of prior prior knowledge, um, any experiences you've had with them and so on and so forth. And just talk us through what uh, a particular topic or a concept and, and all the different aspects that go into your thinking well, when, when you're putting that together. And I'll be annoying. I'll interrupt you at various points and no doubt we'll, we'll go off on, on various tangents. But just just take us through it, Peter. So so what's what's the lesson or the sequence of lessons? What's the class and, and how do you put it together? Yeah, so actually the one I've chosen to talk about is not a class I teach at all. Um, it's I'm going to talk to you about the, the planning for the Year 7 scheme that we've put in place this year at my school. It's brand new and it's influenced a lot by the the research that I've been exposed to and that my team's been exposed to over the last few years, you know, including your own book and the research that you highlighted, but also the, the research that I've come across for NCTM and the work I've done myself in the area of visible maths. Um, so this is the, the sort of the context is we teach year seven in mixed ability. Uh, I desperately wanted to actually teach year seven this year. Uh, but because I only work at my school four days a week, the timetable didn't allow for that to happen. Uh, but what we did is we shared the planning of the resources that we use to, for the year seven scheme around the department. And I, um, was developing the resources for the fraction unit that we're going to be teaching sort of in and around when we get back after Easter, depending on exactly where each class has progressed to. And uh, so I I was planning that and, and sort of wrote, quite recently finished planning that, actually, um, truth be told, uh, for the for sort of year seven mixed ability. And it takes you right through from sort of, introduction to fractions different ways we can think about fractions different ways we can represent fractions and then all the way through to sort of op four operations with fractions calculation with fractions that sort of thing uh it's a something like 27 28 broadly lesson sequence as in you know not necessarily hour sequence but 27 28 sort of key learning points mm. that we want to, that we want to address and that's really the sort of start point is we look at what the key learning points are for that unit that we want to talk about you know be it into arithmetic be it fractions and whatever else and we really try and drill down to the separate key learning points that that we want to, to sort of work on with students. Could you give us an could you give another example, Pete, of some of the learning? Yeah, points? yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, and they're very, you know, they're very, very specific. So, uh, one that I've shared previously is uh, the idea of adding fractions. We break that down into five key learning points. So we look at uh, understanding the addition of fractions when denominators are equal. Um, the second key learning point is understanding why fractions with unequal denominators will not add you know looking at why they won't add in their current form mm. why a, why a change is needed before they will add 
Then we look at fractions where one denominator is a multiple of another. So, you know, half and an eighth. So eight is a multiple of two. Then we look at um, adding and subtracting fractions where the denominators don't share a common factor. So a fifth and a ninth, something like that, where the, you know, where you find the lowest common multiple by just multiplying the mm. denominators. And then we look at, uh, finding or adding and subtracting two fractions when the denominators do share a common factor, where the lowest common multiple isn't just the product of the two denominators. And so, you know, we really break that down. That's say five of the lessons or five of the, key learning points that we look to address and then we um you know there are other examples of this we look at fractions of amounts and you know some of the key learning points in there are finding a fract a unit fraction of an integer where the result is an integer mm. and then later on we'll look at finding a unit fraction of an integer where the result is not an integer and things like that. So we really sort of break this down into, into really sort of key learning points. And then what we look at is how they connect to other concepts that we previously taught. So I mentioned adding and subtracting fractions. Obviously, there are connections there in terms of connecting to the idea of fractions. You know, we explored the idea of fractions, different ways of thinking about fractions, different ways of representing fractions, different ways of looking at fractions. Which of those ideas about fractions are going to help us teach these key learning points or this key learning point or that key learning point? Uh, if you're talking about addition and subtraction of fractions, then you've also got the concept of addition and subtraction, you know, so it's mm. right there in the, in the words, addition and subtraction of fractions. You've got the concept of addition. You've got the concept of subtraction. What do these things mean? How, what is it, what is our previous exposure to these look like? And then you've got the concept of fraction. What's that mean? And how does this all come together to allow us to sort of see why? And that's a big important point for me in the, the work I do with my department is seeing why. Why do these things interact the way they do? Why does this concept shape itself in the way it does? Because, you know, very rarely are these things either arbitrary or random. You know, addition and subtraction of fractions works in the way it does for a reason. What is that reason? What is that why? Why does that work in the way it does? And that all comes back to, you know, what do we understand about addition and subtraction? What do we understand about fractions? So we look at all that and we bring that all together and we choose the sort of the suitable representations, the suitable uh, manipulatives, etc., that we might want to use to understand that key learning point. We bring them into our examples uh, you know, structure our examples carefully, think about the sort of standard examples that we might use, but also the non-standard examples that we might use to illustrate this concept, things like that. And then we sort of put that all together with appropriate practice, be it, you know, a carefully varied sequence of questions, be it, uh, you know, something that gets them, you know, what you what you term purposeful practice. You know, we pick up problems from all sorts of places that that allows that to happen. Um, and then sort of how it connects then. We connect it next to the next key learning point and sort of build up the picture like that. 
This is this is fascinating, Peter. I've got about 28 questions for you here that I'm just kind of running around in my head on this. And let, let me start with let me start with the first one. Um, is you, you keep saying we here? So is this is this something that would one teacher like yourself take a lead on it and then bring in other people later on, or would it be kind of starting from scratch with a couple of you coming up with these learning points? What are the practicalities of how this works as a team, if that makes sense? Yeah. Okay. So we have we have our background documents that are similar in structure to a lot of people's scheme of work. You know, it talks about um, how how a how a unit of learning might break down. You know, take a general topic like fraction like fractions. What are the objectives? Excuse me, that we want to look at within this unit. Things like that. How might we broadly break that down into lessons or learning episodes or you know keep assigned key learning points because it's not always just one key learning point at a time that mm. sort of thing um i do a lot of that behind the scenes work as the head of department um you know put put structures in place that i think broadly will work but then i take it to the team and we sit down and we look at it and we go you know okay so do we agree these are the key learning points do we uh, are there anything about this we would change is this structure right is this you know is the sequencing right things like that and we look at that sort of the sequence of the topics and then we look at the sequence within the topic because it both are important i mean prime example in the in the first draft of this scheme that we put together we had a unit about data representation that included pie charts and then we realized that we couldn't talk about pie charts until we talked about fractions Mm. And we're supposed to do that first. So we actually split that unit in half, did a bit of data representation beforehand and then talked about fractions and then came back to data representation uh, and included pie charts in the later one. So we looked at that and that was sort of one thing that came out of the department. But then, yeah, but then we so we then look at each unit and sort of look at the sequencing within that. And then we sort of share it out. So uh, generally, I like people to work in pairs. Uh, they can share the workload. They can bounce ideas off each other. So uh, most of the units for that year seven scheme were create or the teaching material that's put, that went with the units was created by uh, pairs of my teachers working together. Um, I had created an initial one myself to sort of give them an idea, give them a template of what it might look like uh, in reality. And then they went away and sort of worked on developing those materials. It just so happened, though, that I don't have quite as many pairs as we have units. So <laughs> the fraction, the fractions unit was one that I said, you know, this one, this one I'll take and I'll do myself and I'll bring back to you guys. Uh, and we do that, you know, sort of we're lucky enough to have quite a bit of department time um, after school. You know, a lot of the a lot of the after school time that's given. Uh, is given to departments and virtually every department meeting will sort of look at a unit within the year seven uh, scheme of work and say okay let's have a look at this unit let's have a look at the teaching material let's have a look at how it's how it works and what you know what some of the key things are from the person or people who, who have developed it got it and can i ask as well peter the um 
having spoken to Naveen on the uh, Naveen Rizvi um, episode, um, she she outlined when she was describing her planning process um, a booklet that, that she created that essentially is is really prescriptive to, to the extreme. It, it says what the, 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 the language the teacher should use, the examples, the practice questions, the quizzes and so on and so forth. It's, it's essentially a script for, for want of a better phrase. Um, how prescriptive do you go on this? Once this planning's done, you, you mentioned you kind of choose the ex- the standard examples, the non-standard, the intelligent sequence of, of questions, the purposeful practice. Once that's all planned out, is it a case of the rest of your department follow that to the letter or is there kind of opportunities for them to do different things within there? Just just how prescriptive is this, Peter? And, and why, why did you make that decision? Yes. So it's not, I mean, I've listened to, to Naveen's uh, podcast as well. And I, I, so I get what you mean. It's not as prescriptive as that. It doesn't have to be followed precisely to the letter uh, because there's a recognition there that, that every class is different and that, uh, you know, teachers will need to respond to their classes and what's happening and things like that. Um, but the, it, it, so it's more the philosophy and the concept that's important and the sort of teaching materials are supposed to put flesh on those bones bring that to life uh, as it were in terms of uh you know this is what that actually looks like for this key learning point for this unit so uh, but if a teacher has got something that they that fits that philosophy that they think will benefit their students from working on or from seeing. I don't mind that. I don't mind teachers putting their own spin on things. I don't mind teachers using their own personality with things. You know, if if there's some situations where a teacher will look at, say, an example sequence or something like that and go, well, you know, it's just it's just not me. It's just not the it's just not my approach. It would actually throw my class to to be forced to work in that way so they might then adapt that and and do it and do it slightly differently uh, but the the what they're secure on and what they must be secure on and what we'll look at you know if, if they are changing things and things like that is that the the core underlying messages of making sense of things why do things work the way they do how does that why does that mean that this procedure works this algorithm works this process works uh, those sorts of things won't get lost at any point those are the important bits for me that that makes that makes perfect sense let, let me um i've got another few questions here but let me just pick up on yeah, something, yeah, yeah. something straight away there um again this could take us off into a whole different different uh, <laughs> area but let, let's just go for it and um, you mentioned you've mentioned a lot in this conversation already peter that this, this concept of why you, you want students to understand why the algorithm works and um, you want them to understand why things fit together now um I, again uh, I, th- I think you've read my book and you, you'll know that I'm, awesome. I'm a little i'm a little bit unsure about this I, i've i've often been obsessed with always convincing kids why i do something before i show them how to do it and over the last couple of years i've, I've changed my mind slightly if, if the why is more complicated and more potentially more confusing and difficult to grasp than the how i'll flip it around i'll teach students how how to do something get them feeling confident get them feeling successful and then later on i can say okay that thing that you've absolutely nailed that thing that you're feeling great about here's actually why it works and i found that kind of uh, a better approach for, for some concepts and some methods and so on and um, are, you, are you always the why first and have, have you ever come across this 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 problem that's that's tempted you to perhaps flip it around or, or not so, I mean, there's, there's two parts to that. The first part is I'm a realist. 
there are times when you know my my philosophy and my uh, my belief about how mass education should work is subordinated to the fact that kids are on a deadline they've got things that need to get done i don't like the idea of get done but you know you, mm. you get sort you get the sort of uh, what comes across in that phase you know if you're six months away from a GCSE exam in year 11 and you don't know how to add fractions, well, then I'm going to drill you in, in adding fractions sure. and try, try and make sure that you can at least do that. So if you are lucky enough in the exam to get a question that just says add these two fractions together, that you're going to be able to attempt that with some hope of success uh, because at that point, you know, Securing your future opportunities, securing your future life chances is subordinated to your um, your need to understand what it is we're doing. Mm. But there's a there's another couple of aspects to that, which is why are they at a point where the ability to do is easier than the ability to understand? And that's where I think and this is, you know, we come to this later when. I talk about the book, but that's where I think the idea of representation structure and showing, you know, finding ways of revealing that to students is what actually makes the why easier than the do. You know, why? I mean, let's let's take a concept that's that's seen as hard, something like dividing fractions, Mm. dividing fractions, the the why is seen as much harder than the ability to do you know to do is easy you turn the second fraction over turn it into a times multiply the tops multiply the bottom is done yes yeah so the do so the do is quite straightforward understanding why that works could be seen as as harder to understand why is it harder to understand well it's harder to understand because really you don't have good models of division the students in front of you don't really understand division And so if you backtrack a couple of years or even six months or something like that, and when you first teach division, you teach division in a way that has some length, has some longitude on it, you know, that that you're aware that, right, the way I teach division now and the models I give students for division, the way that I get students to think about division, I know that that's got to support them. They've got to be able to stand on that when they are making sense of how to divide negative integers, how to divide fractions, how to divide thirds, how to divide algebraic uh, expressions. And if I'm aware of all of that, when I teach the concept of division and what it means, what this, you know, what this divide symbol means in terms of the ways I can think about it, well, then actually the why is no harder than the do. The why is just as straightforward. The why only becomes hard when we really, for me, when we don't have the underlying models. You know, as Mark would say, that's the point where we're teaching the wrong maths. Mm. You know, we're not teaching them the maths they need. Because if you don't understand, if you're not in a position to understand why division of fraction works, then there is something missing from your understanding of division. Now, yeah, I can get you to do that. I can get you to divide two fractions and I can get you, you know, I can drill you to the point where you'll never forget, or at least not until the exam's over, you'll never forget how those, uh, how that, how that process works, you know, and I can do that. That's fine. And if it, like I say, 
if it gets to a certain point in year 11 or wherever else, then I'll fall back on that, you know, because I'm a pragmatist and I'm not a, I'm not so wedded to my philosophy that I'm going to follow it to the detriment of my kids. But yeah, so, you know, if you're in year 11 and you're, you're in a position where you don't have the, the necessary understanding of division for me to build on, then fine. I'm going to drill you. I'm going to teach you the process and I'm going to get you to the point where you can follow that process. But if I've got the time and if I've got the time to plan this journey over five years, which is the, the limit of what I've got is in my school is five years, then actually I can plan in year seven to give you and to support you in making sense of division. And then having made sense of division, having taken that time to make sense of that concept, then I can, when we come back to how to divide fractions, how to divide negatives, dividing thirds, what that means, then actually we've already got the tools to make sense of that. You know, I hear a lot these days about people talking about cultural capital and knowledge rich and things like that. Uh, And I hear the same people talking about drill. I think, well, is that the knowledge that our kids are actually heirs to? Is that the, is that what is that the sort you know is that what we've built up over our human history, our human civilization, to the point where we are happy that kids can do that? And so, for me, you know, that's that's where I'm at with it in terms of if the why is too hard. I am looking at it thinking, well, what went, what went wrong two or three years ago mm. to make, or six months ago, or whenever it was, to make the why too hard? Let's correct that so that when we get to this point, the why becomes easy. But oh. you can only, you can only do that within your sphere of influence and you can only do that retrospectively almost. You know, if I get to year 11 and I find that, that kids don't have those models, don't have that understanding, then I've got to deal with the situation that's in front of me. And then I've got to look back and go, right, well, we didn't do that right back then. So let's do, let's change that and make sure we do that right. So that these kids are in the right place by the time they get to having to divide fractions or learning about how division of fractions works. Got it. Got it. Fascinating. Fascinating that Peter. Um, let, let, let me ask you, let me ask you another question about this planning. Now I hope this, I hope this comes out right, but you, you mentioned there that this um, year, year seven, um, is a mixed mixed attainment year and teaching in mixed attainment groups. Now, um, I've been open and honest on the podcast in the past to say I'm, I'm very little experience of teaching mixed attainment. I've been lucky enough to, to do it in several schools I've worked in for short periods of time as part of AST and, and kind of numerous things, but never in the schools where I've been kind of full-time employed have I done mixed attainment. Now, Helen Hindle came on the podcast um, last year and described a mixed attainment lesson that she taught on, on sequences. And honestly, Peter, I've never heard anything like it in my life. It sounded like my my idea of hell because you had you it was part of an inquiry and you had kids you, she she described how you had some students who were just tr- kind of struggling to work out um, what each sequence was going up in. So if it's kind of two, five, eight, eleven, and so on, some students were working on that. Whilst on on another table, some students were kind of figuring out how to solve quadratic sequences and nth term and all this kind of thing. And like my head was hurting. I thought I, I literally couldn't teach that lesson. I wouldn't know what's going on. Now what I'm interested here is. Um, you described how within your 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 lessons for for this year seven um, this year 
seven scheme. You've got things like the intelligent sequences of, of, of questions and so on and so forth. W what does that look like in terms of mixed attainment? Because I can kind of see how the purposeful practice would fit in with students accessing it at different points and so on. But whenever you've got kind of fixed examples that you want students to do or f a fixed kind of sequence of questions you want students to do, how does that work in a broadly mixed attainment class? Are the difficulties there and have you, have you found ways to combat it? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's a minor concern. It's a concern, but it's a minor concern that if you're working through this example sequence, that it might be too easy for some kids uh, we try not to make it too hard for anybody and that's where the the sort of build-up of again using representation manipulative structure um to to sort of make sense of what is happening which which can be new for most kids so with prime with primary schools the way they are uh, we're getting more kids through now that are used to working in those ways a little bit, but it's still not um, it's still not where it should be, and it's still not as widespread as I would like it. Um, so actually, you know, taking time to make sense of things, even simple things. You know, the first thing we do is is look at different ways of looking at addition. You know, different ways of thinking about addition and seeing what addition can mean, the different ways we can interpret what addition looks like. Um, and, you know, you can look at that and think, yeah, well, you've got kids in there that have got 120 in their sats. They mm. don't need to be going back to addition. But very often they do because, you know, they they can do addition. They can add numbers. Uh, but do they have all of the tools in their bag necessary to think about addition, you know, addition as collection of objects? Do they have the tools in the bag to think about addition as as counting on from one point to another? Do they have the tools to think about addition as lengthening something, stretching something, that sort of thing? Do they have these models in place for addition? Rarely do they. So, you know, from that point of view, actually, there's there's something new there for for most kids all the point if we get to the point where every primary school that what that i work with is working with addition in that way and they come with that knowledge and with that understanding with those models in place all kids or you know at least a healthy a healthy majority of kids you know the sort of numbers that then i can pick up in intervention for those few that don't then i'll remove that from my scheme you know, mm. I won't need to, I won't need to do that anymore. But right now I've got kids coming to me in year seven that don't really understand addition. They can do addition, but they don't understand addition. And so when you when you work with these models and you get kids to work with these models, that's often something new for all of them. And then, you know, your your sequences of questions, you know, like the ones you put on variationtheory.com and the ones that mentioned in your book, uh, they're just another part of revealing that structure revealing the underlying connections the underlying ideas that are going on so we'll use those you know we'll use things like it we'll design things like those we'll use those to to help students see what the where these connections are mm. and if you know if there are one or two kids in the room that that might be a bit quicker making those connections might have made those connections by the third question of, of seven or eight or nine well then then, you know what, well, it's only two minutes of their lives. They'll get over it. It's not, mm. an, it's not a massive issue for me. Uh, and then we'll move into the sort of the practice that um, 
that can actually stretch students, that can actually make, get students to really think about and deepen their understanding of those connections. Um, you know, and that might be, that will be through place, different places where we've chosen activities or designed activities, things like that. So no, I won't have what sort of Helen described as different kids working on different key learning points, you know, because that's, that's what's going on there. There are different key learning points in that room. You've got some kids who are working on a key learning point of being able to find the difference between two numbers, and you've got other kids working on a key learning point of using their understanding of differences to create an algebraic expression. Mm. Uh, and that's that's two different key learning points for me. I'm not happy with kids like that. And like you say, you know, I know a lot of teachers that would struggle to manage that well, um so we're not we're not about that that's not what that's not the way that we we work but you know we focus on one key learning point but what you find when you look at these things is that actually there's a lot you can do within just that one key learning point oh absolutely and, and i'll tell you what i'm what i'm thinking here uh, pete you you shared fairly recently um on tez your sequence of worksheets didn't you for this for, for i think five of the, the learning points uh, I, I shared Shared, I shared five for the five adding fractions learning points, yeah. Absolutely, and I'll put a link to those in the show notes because I've actually, I chose them for, for my resource of the week for, for March. So when this podcast comes out, um, viewers may be able to either, even see that and I'll put a link to it. But I, I was just thinking there that, uh, just, just to clarify this in my own mind, Peter, that everybody's, every child in the class is getting that worksheet. Is that right? And it, is it just the case that they're having, yeah. they're working through them at different speeds, they're having different experiences because they're making connections at different points. But every child child is on the same work is that right yes every child would be expected to access that and quite like uh, Naveen at that point you know there's there's a first set there if you look at those there's a first set there that every child uh, should be able to access confidently you know I'm I actually not a hundred percent on if I put something in front of kids with my having been through a sequence of instruction or whatever it is that we've done I, I want to put something in front of them that actually I'm fairly confident they're going to be able to access. You know, I'll twist it. And then you see with some of those questions, you know, they're not the sort of they're the non-standard examples. Yes. You know, they're not the sort of standard questions that you might see in a textbook if you're asking kids to add fractions with the same denominator. You know, there's there's a lot in there that that you would look at and go, well, that's not to the key learning point. And you have to, th you have to look at it again and, and think about it a little bit more before you realize that it is, uh, you know, but that is still within the grasp of every student in that room. Some of them might need a little bit of prompting and we, but you know, we've, we've dealt with that through the examples and all the rest of it. So uh, everybody gets that worksheet, which is a chance for them to sort of consolidate that thinking and that, that, that way of thinking about, uh, the key learning points in their own terms and then stretch it and then deepen it. Uh, and then allied to that, we have these things that we build into our planning called bright sparks. And I've been having this discussion actually today and last night on Twitter about bright sparks. So my school, my previous, um, MAMA coordinator, more and most able coordinator was actually a member of the math department and she instigated this policy of bright spark, which is, you know, designed to be a sort of extension, something for the more and most able to get their teeth into. Now, my philosophy for education is that we shouldn't be denying opportunities to some students, mm. you know, to, to think and to reason and to deepen. That's how, that's how gaps ultimately appear. 
is that you know if i if one student gets the chance to think about this idea a little bit more than another student then the gap the gap, that gap opens up now by the time they get to secondary school gaps are there at this point at least gaps are there and there's you know we can try and close them we can try and stop them from from getting any wider but gaps are there but that still me that still doesn't mean that i want to make them bigger by giving some kids extension work and other kids not extension work so the way we use that in my department is that the bright spark and the, the sort of the icon for it is a light bulb so it ties in quite nicely we we use that as a way of illuminating the concept so giving light to a new aspect of it or an, an aspect of it that students might not have perhaps previously considered so when they've worked on that worksheet and some of them will finish and move on to the bright spark quite quickly some of them will take a little longer but there will be there will come a, a point where everybody stops working on that worksheet regardless of where they've got to and accesses this sort of thing this you know whatever it is it, it might be uh, an open-ended question it might be you know um, a sequence of, of questions that can prompt thinking in a new way i mean i've put examples up on twitter previously there are lots of them uh, that i've shared that are out there that that um that people can look at but they that's the sort of chance for everybody really to to just look at this in a new way in a way that's a bit different and deepen their thinking about it a little bit that's interesting that pete and it's so it's not the case that the only way you get onto this is if you finish the the previous no. worksheet there will be a point if you do finish it you're going to get onto this sooner than others but you make a conscious decision that there will be a point where everybody experiences this is is that right yeah, that's that's the goal. That's the aim, certainly. You know, that's the message that I give to the department and that I reinforce with the department. And that's the way I use them myself is there's a time when we start. We all look at that. Now, if you've gone onto it quicker, you might then go, you know, you might go a little further with it. You might uh, you might uncover things that others won't ultimately um and you know if you or or even if you don't get onto it quicker even if everybody in the class starts it at the same time you might uncover more mm. from it than others might but you know there's very little that i can do about that in terms of the the rate at which that activity will open up your awareness you know some some kids will just become aware of more things quicker than others because of background and because you know because by the time they get to this they've been taught maths for six years or so uh, plus whatever they've had you know outside of school and this sort of thing so there's very there's very little there's very little i can do to control for that yes properly but i'm you know that's at the end of the day i'm not i'm not interested in holding back some kids so that they so that other kids can sort of uh, it's hard to explain but I know I'm, not I'm, not, I'm not interested in holding back children that are ready to to move on you know and this is one of the this has been one of the the sort of criticisms of mastery uh which big m there uh but this has been one of the criticisms i've heard of mastery and mastery approaches that are happening is that kids are being held back uh until everybody can do the most basic idea of that uh that unit and and you want everybody to be able to do the most basic idea of that unit and you should, you know, there should be models there to make that work. Um, but it's, you know, you can't have kids sat there. I heard one recently of 
you know, kids sat there measuring acute angles for like two lessons because not everybody had got it perfect yet. You can't do that to yeah. kids. You know, it's just not on. So, so, you know, the bright spark is a way to, to allow kids to, to take that deeper and to, and to go further with that. And some kids will therefore go deeper than others, but there is this sort of at least core framework that needs to be secure and i do want that secure in everybody got it got it fantastic final question on on planning planning a lesson and i and i could i could speak to you all day about this pete but the, the, this one's been been kind of rattling around in my head for a while now and i'm interested in your take on this and um, you described how you when you put these sequence of lessons together you break it down into these learning points and i think you said there was 27 or 28 in this particular unit on fractions yeah. now um a bit of a kind of buzzword going around at the moment is is atomization and when naveen <laughs> comes back on the show she's going to talk about her views on it but regardless of whether this is atomization or not or what people take that word to mean that the bottom line here is you're you're breaking down something like fractions into its component parts and essentially kind of hammering those parts developing and making sure students have got a really sound understanding my question is peter how does this get br brought back together because just to take a specific example if we take your your worksheets on on adding and subtracting fractions we've got the first one where students are focusing on fractions with the same denominator i think the third one is where they want a factor of another the fourth one they they've no common factor and the fifth one they've um, got a common factor something along those lines i, I yeah. can understand how students would nail each individual thing but then of course we've all seen the problem of then students get a question in isolation and they don't know is this one of the ones that's from worksheet one or is this worksheet three what technique do i use so do, is, is do you have a deliberate way of, of bringing things back together at the end of one of these uh, the, these kind of sequences of lessons or does it happen continually within there if that makes sense yeah, yeah, yeah i got you I mean so again uh, you know and, and you've spoken about it there you can see kids nailing each of these techniques in isolation the point is here these are not techniques these are not just abstract isolated processes that we get kids to go through one after the other this is a building on this is a development of our understanding of adding fractions so we understand how addition works let's leave subtraction aside for mm. a because it's virtually the same thing uh we we understand how addition works we have good models for addition what does that look like when it comes to fractions well it's it's quite clear and obvious what that looks like when it comes to adding fractions with the same denominator you know and if you've got good models of addition then actually you you, you can see kids automatically being able to see why those two fractions will add in the way that they add. Um, and that's fine. But then you develop that. So then it's like, okay, so it's not a, a new separate technique. It's a development from that basis. And it's all about, you know, putting a layer in place and then building on it, putting a layer in place and then building on it. So by the time they get to the fifth of this sequence it's not i have learned five separate techniques to add mm. fractions in this situation and then to add fractions in this situation and now i've got to try and remember which technique i'm going to use it's i have built my understanding of fraction of how to add fractions from a from relatively simple fractions that add together in a way that i might naturally expect to understanding how the other things that I know about addition and the other things that I know about fractions come together to mean that 
this is what fraction, how fraction and how the concepts of fractions and addition combine. And so I can see that and I have a good model for that. I have a good understanding of how that works. So then actually these things are not now separate questions. They are not separate techniques. There is no difference between this thing. I understand the overarching idea. And because I understand the overarching idea, it's not about one technique or another technique. I understand what's got to happen in order for these things to add. Got it. Got it. Well, would you explicitly make the decision to include examples from prior? And I know lesson isn't the right kind of unit of time to think of, but prior um, I forget the, the terminology you use, but the learning points. Well, would you chuck one from two learning points ago into the mix in this particular learning point? Just to, just just for retrieval, just to check that kids can distinguish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interleaving retrieval, understanding is not enough for memory. And that much is clear. You know, we know that there are plenty of things that people understand and they can understand for a while. And then eventually through lack of practice and through lack of having to re-engage with that idea. And that's the, that's the key thing. Practice is one way of re-engaging with an idea. Mm. But you need to, if you're going to remember, you've got to re-engage with that idea. It's not enough just to understand it in the moment. So, yeah, there are there are opportunities for re-engaging with that idea all the way through you know actually adding fractions is one of them because in adding fractions what you're doing is you're re-engaging with the idea of addition yes so you can re-engage with an idea when you learn something when you learn about how two different ideas come together you know we've got this idea of addition and what that means we've got this idea of fractions and what they are when we bring those two together we're re-engaging with both of those ideas and you know addition is something we might have done six months ago and fractions is something we might have done three weeks ago, but now we're bringing them together to learn about how these things come together. And then later on, I'll engage with addition of fractions and how it links to another idea, how it might link to perimeter or how it might link to this or that or the other or whatever else. But, you know, even so that's the sort of natural way. I think we'll, we'll, we'll Emily calls it into, into weaving. Yes. The sort of natural way that, that when you understand a concept you can bring it you can bring it in alongside and overlap with other concepts but you know we do the standard you know it's not just uh representation and structure and understanding we do the standard memory thing so every lesson in our or every um sort of learning episode key learning point whatever starts with a do now a 15 questions and these 15 questions cycle you know they're through prior topics um, picking up different topics at different times, forcing kids to re-engage with them and then putting them down again for a little while and then picking them up again and then putting them down again. I mean, you've seen my homework booklets. The homework that we do uh, hasn't changed. You know, the structure of the homework booklets hasn't changed with this New Year 7 scheme. There, there's slightly more questions now. Instead of 20 questions, there are 28 questions. I'll get around to putting them on test at some point. But And these 28 questions stretch back over everything that they have learnt to that point, you know. So for in term three, you've still got questions from integer arithmetic, forcing them to pick those ideas up again and work with them in sometimes simple ways, sometimes complicated ways. I'm not, I'm not overly fussy when it comes to that. Yes. Uh, but the idea is they've got to pick that up again. So yeah, 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 yeah. We definitely we want them picking up ideas again having to work with them and then having to put them down and come back to them but as you know yourself you know there is there are points where actually if you get them to bring 
another idea when they are not secure in the idea that you want them secure in then actually what you end up with is confusion and i think yes. you've spoken about this again uh, certainly since the book was written the idea that that um that there are times when actually you want them just to focus on one thing um and and not sort of bring in other ideas and interleave things and it can be damaging if you do it at the wrong point Absolutely. Uh, so that, you know, that's the balance we try to strike. We've not got it perfect. We'll have to adapt. We'll have to tweak things. But that's what we're aiming for, sir. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating, that Pete. Well, um, I want to speak to you now about about running a maths department because you, you've you've mentioned you're an experienced head of department. You've done it in um, in several schools. And it's always a popular kind of segment uh, when I have a, a head of department on the show. Um, I've had Amir Arazu on in the past speaking yes. about this. Uh, Andrew Blair um, in the past speaking about this. Gemma Sherwood's going to come back on the show to talk about this. So I just want to ask you a few questions about running a maths department, because this hopefully will be of interest to heads of department out there, but also teachers who are aspiring to be heads of departments or just people who are interested in how in, in how other departments are run. So my first question to you, Pete, is um, what mistakes have you made while running a department and, and what did you learn from those mistakes yeah loads of them so <laughs> actually the very the, the when you when you asked me to describe my favorite uh, mistake early on and when i was looking at that question in advance the first thing i i thought to talk about was not a mistake i'd made in a lesson at all uh and it was only later when i realized you were going to put this segment in that i thought all oh, right well I'll, I'll go back to talk about that but yeah so my literally my very first almost very first day as head of maths uh so i joined oxford spires academy in january of 2011 as a head of maths so just over eight years in three different schools um and I got my team and I, you know, I'd, I'd done a bit of leadership, sort of general leadership training. I'd been on the SSAT, uh, NQT leadership and mentoring. I'd done a, the, the local group of schools before I moved had a sort of leadership, um, leadership course, as it were, year long sort of in and out with gap tasks in between, uh, course for how to lead a department. Uh, and how to be a, a leader in schools. Um, and so I'd done these things, and obviously one of the key things that they talk to you about on these uh, on these courses is vision. You've got to have a vision <laughs> for what you want, your, you know, the area you're leading to be. So uh, at the time, I'd say I was, I was um, five and a half years in, I must have been at that point. Uh, no, four and, a, four, and a, four and a third years in. It was January of... January of 2011. So I was four and a third years in and I, I knew I had to have a vision and I needed to communicate that vision to my team. So what did I, to my new team? So what did I do? I, well, of course it was January. It was an inset day, perfect time. I got them together and I sat down, I sat them all down at the table and for an hour I talked from a PowerPoint <laughs> about my vision for what maths at Oxford Spires was going to be like. And these people didn't know me from Adam. Yes. You know, I mean, they, uh, I look back on it now and I, I, I laugh, but I cringe a little bit inside because it's just like that was that was the, the, the uh, that, it wasn't the worst possible way to introduce myself to a new team. But my God, does it run close? <laughs> you know, <laughs> in terms of actually, I knew nothing about them. They knew nothing about me. I knew very little. You know, I'd been in for an interview day and my interview day, actually, believe it or not, was in a half term week when the kids weren't even there. <laughs> I 
So I've not seen any of them teach. They've not seen me teach. They knew nothing what I was about at all. And I thought I was communicating that effectively. But yeah, I mean, it's just it, it was just an experience. The bottom line at the end of the day, you know, I'd never done it before. I didn't really have that. Although I'd done the leadership courses and all the rest of it, I didn't really have that network of people where I could go to and say, you know, do you think this works? Do you think this is a good idea? I didn't share that PowerPoint with anybody beforehand um which you know automatically would do now you know i'm going into an i'm going into a new school as a head of maths what do you think to this as a way of introducing or whatever else because somebody would have said to me i hope at least my god no don't uh, <laughs> uh so yeah that was a pretty horrendous mistake right from day one but we got over it and we uh we sort of, so they sat for an hour and they listened intently while i droned on and on about this is what i wanted and this is what we're going to do and the change we're going to make blah 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 and then they all went away quite happily and you know these things broadly happened but it was just completely the wrong way to make that introduction and to make those things happen um and what's what's the right way pete what what would you do different <laughs> uh so first off i i'd go in and actually listen a lot more than i would talk and some people don't believe that of me because i know i like to talk a lot <laughs> <laughs> but uh but actually listening is really important there early on i want to go in and i want to hear what they've got to say about the way the department runs the way the way it doesn't run you know the things that should run that don't um and then i want to you know hear from see what's going on see it in action see where the things are that that are going well and aren't going well and stuff like that and then actually sit down and have an honest collaborative conversation about it, not just me drone on for an hour about, well, this is what we're going to do to fix this, and this is what we're going to do to change this. I mean, I kind of got away with it because most of the staff in the school, in the department, were sort of very new. They were very, they were even less experienced than me. There was a guy who, the guy there who'd been teaching there as long as I had, um, who was a head of house. So he only taught there sort of, he only taught in the department sort of 16, 17 hours in the week. Um, and then the rest of them were all, you know, NQT or NQT plus one. So I kind of got away with it because there was nobody there with the sort of experience that would have just called me on it and said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, but now looking back on that and looking back on, you know, and my experiences since then, if I could go back to myself now and say, you know, actually just talk to people, collaborate with people, treat them like the, you know, treat them like professionals, not treat them like something, somebody that is just there to listen to what you say and deliver your vision. Um, then that, that I think would, would be a much better way of doing it. It might not still be perfect. And I think it does depend on the people you've got in front of you, but, uh, that would certainly be, the way I would look to approach it, doing it again and doing it now. Fantastic. Um, any other mistakes that spring to mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, you've, everybody's made them. If you've been doing the job, you know, as long as we have 13, 14, 15 years, you've all made them, you know, dealing with uh, a kid in the wrong way. I mean, I'm, I made one just the other just the other week where I had a kid who was, was causing one of the staff difficulty regularly, uh, he was, so he'd been, um, I, he'd been out wandering. Uh, he was actually joined form time, wasn't even joined a math lesson, but he'd been out wandering. Um, and I'd seen him wandering and I pulled him in 
you know, and he'd said, he'd, he'd given some lame excuse. <laughs> Uh, and clearly, I didn't work hard enough to keep the incredulity from my face uh, because he sort of got really upset and accused me of mocking him and stormed out. Now, I really wasn't trying to mock him, but at the same time, I could actually, from, uh, clearly, I was somewhat uh, incredulous as to how he could have the the, uh, the cojones, shall we say, to sit in front of me and feed me such an, an, an obvious pack of lies. So, uh, but obviously, you know, actually what I should have done is I should have tried a little bit harder to keep that incredulity from my face and diffuse the situation and put him back in the right frame of mind to go back in the classroom. And instead I caused an issue uh, through just not being careful enough, you know. Uh, and these things, you know, you've been doing this a while, these things happen and they happen regularly and every one of them is a learning opportunity and experience to try and do something better the next time. But our memory of experiences fade. So probably in a few years' time, I, I might well end up making the same mistakes. I'll have forgotten about that little young man. <laughs> you know, it's all because part of your strategic knowledge long-term, doesn't it? You try not to dwell on too much, learn the lesson, try and apply it next time, hope that it will form a lasting part of your strategic knowledge. Got it. Superb. Um, I want to ask about a few just kind of practicalities about running a maths department here, Peter. First of all, what, what's your marking policy? Uh, do as little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> this is basically how it can be summed up. I mean, this, the school has an, an assessment and feedback policy that, of course, we have to follow. Uh, we get the chance to influence that, which is nice, you know, from from our point of view. You can never it's it's unreasonable to expect everything to be exactly the way you want it you know we wouldn't we wouldn't accept that of kids coming into our lesson and saying this has got to be perfectly set up for me because it's physically impossible when you've got 30 other kids in the room um and in the same way you know school leaders have got 15 20 whatever it is depending on how many courses you run different departments to try and satisfy and please now you can give a level of autonomy to those and you could admit that they're going that you know the way you're going to assess in maths is going to be different to the way you assess in english but at the same time for you to stay sane you're going to to need to know what to look for yes. uh, when you go and look at these things uh, and there are some people that say you know well why do slt need to go and look at it at all but you know reality these days there's a huge amount of public money going into education it always has been it's not these days but there's a huge amount of public money going into education and their job is to make sure that money's doing the right things so they are going to have to come and look you know it's a reality of, of their job as well as our job and they're going to need to know what to look for and if they've got 20 or 30 completely disparate things to look for i mean would you be able to do it with any great effectiveness i'm not sure i would so they have these sort of we can influence it and they have and then they have they make these sort of overarching themes and we sort of use those in a way that is practical so the nuts and bolts of it are we have a policy where we will do whole class feedback you know and that was uh, that was something obviously that, that's growing in popularity and we've adopted that and we're quite happy with that so we will every couple of weeks three weeks or so something like that uh, when it makes sense as part of a cycle of learning, uh, we will take some material, usually an assessment, you know, usually a, a timed and controlled assessment or something of, of that nature. And we will look at it and we will use it as a judge to see where our teaching hasn't landed. 
you know, and that's, uh, as you know yourself and you've spoken yourself, you know, you can't judge whether learning has happened at that point because mm. learning has got to be far-reaching. But what you can judge is if they're, they're not even able to perform at that level yes. now. Uh, and I know there is this tension about short-term performance and long-term le- long-term learning and Bjork's work and what have you uh, about how actually short-term performance might indicate that there's not going to be long-term learning. And I, I can kind of, I, I, you know, I'll take it. I've not read enough about it to be sure. But at the same token, if I've, you know, if I've got, if I'm teaching, if I've taught a unit on fractions that's included students being able to add fractions and I give them a question, which asks them to add fractions and they can't do it. Is there a reasonable expectation that they are going that in the future that they are magically going to be able to, to, to learn that, to have learned that? Will that come back to them in some mysterious phantom way when it wasn't able to come back to them right there and then? I'm somewhat skeptical. So, uh, so if, you know, if we do that assessment and we look at, we look at, a, the, you know the classes collection of assessments they'll market themselves you know it's not it's not high stakes at all it's timed and it's under it's under conditions but it's it's just for for their own work you know we want we, that's the that's what we want we're saying to them the reason we're going to ask you to work in silence is because it's it's got to be your own work we need to see what you can do um so they do that and then yeah so we'll take those in we'll look at it there's a we have a template which we like which we'll use uh, and fill that in and some teachers will then photocopy that and stick it in kids books and they've got a record of it others don't i don't personally i don't see the need to um and the school is fine either way as long as there's an example of the fact that we that we that we've been looking at that and using that to help move kids on uh, and so then we'll plan from that how we're going to move kids on you know it's fairly standard use of whole class feedback how are we going to move kids on how are we going to address the things that we need to address and that could be anything, you know, that could be, well, I'm going to make sure that my next 10 do nows include this. And in each of those do nows, actually, that's going to be a focus question where I'm going to look at whether kids are doing that and whether uh, and if kids are not understanding that, kids are not able to, to sort of get there with that, that I'm going to make a point of modelling with that particular question. Uh, it could be that actually I'm going to spend an entire lesson re-examining a certain concept, re- trying to rebuild those models, that understanding uh, for that, for what's going on with that, with what that question is telling me about what their lack of understanding is. You know, it could be anything from that. And then the school's policy says that once every large term at least, there's got to be some form of individual written commentary which yeah okay fine you know it wasn't we said well really but you know like say can't we you're never going to please everybody as a school leader so we said yeah fine you know we'll do that that's not an issue and we have um individualized progress check sheets that we can use to to remove the workload of that as far as possible uh but my general philosophy in that area is that teachers are much better spending their time looking at work for misunderstanding, misconception, lack of understanding rather than they are checking accuracy. So we don't do anything in terms of checking accuracy beyond the sort of see if a kid's marked something right that isn't right. Uh, 
the kids will generally do that themselves and will generally do a good job of checking accuracy if given enough time. So they do all of that. We do the reviewing side. We then figure out what that means and what we're going to do about it. Yeah, I th- I, that is, it seems very, very sensible, Peter. Um, particularly the the whole class feedback. It, it's been a real kind of game changer to me um, over the last couple of years. But I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's what does it mean and what are we going to do about it? Because, again, it's it's all well and good adopting a policy of whole class feedback purely to save teachers time. But if it doesn't they're, they're kind of translate to have a positive impact on the class, then it's it's still a waste of time. It's still a waste of teachers time doing that. So that that's what I do. Focus, try to find the areas of, of serious misconceptions and then deal with them in the appropriate way, whether that's reteaching, whether it's modeling, whether it's giving more practice and so on and so forth. And and as you say, like the, 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 the kind of critique to whole class feedback is what about the child who could do it? What about the child who actually understood that? But it's not as if it's a waste of time for them either. It's further practice. It's given them the opportunity to understand the misconceptions and where other students have gone wrong. It's given them the opportunity to provide an explanation that made sense to them, that may make sense to other kids. And my favorite thing to do now, if a child's got something right, is I say to them, can you think of two different ways to explain it? Two different ways. Ways to, to make this make sense to somebody who's still confused. So with whole class feedback, it can still be effective and useful for, for the students who've got that particular thing right. And it's certainly incredibly useful for the students who've, who've struggled with it. Do, do, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a million and one things you can do with kids because what you do, you know, we give kids assessments, they get you've got one, you've got one or two in the room, they've got 100 percent. Hopefully you've got quite a few that score quite highly. So there's only one or two things to pick up on, perhaps. But, you know, those kids have got 100 percent. Well, you know, create a question that's harder, mm. <laughs> you know, create one that's harder that's, that, that, than what's on there. Uh, create my create my bright spark for when I teach this next year. You know, that's 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 easy enough to, for them to do. There's always and like I say, there's always more, more things you can prompt with an idea. So give them give them a different way of looking at it or ask them to look at it in a different way. Ask them to to engage with something that that forces them to think about it in a different way than the way perhaps that you've that you, that you've been looking at within that particular unit you know what there's loads and loads of stuff you can do there and like you say while they're doing that everybody that's the one time where actually i will have quite happily people working on slightly different mm. things uh, because if i'm needing to reteach something or repractice something to the majority I am quite happy to have one or two just working on something slightly different to to develop or to to just broaden and deepen their understanding of a particular concept. Um, because, like I say, I'm not in the business of making kids stand still while others have to catch up. I am in the business trying to get up, but I'm not going to make, you know, part of the strategy, it would be an unfair part of the strategy to say, well, you guys all stand still until the rest of us reach that point. You know, that's, that's just holding kids back for the sake of holding them back. Absolutely. Superb. Um, next question, Pete. You've kind of alluded to this a little bit, but can you just describe your departmental meetings? How frequent are they and what do they look like? Yeah, so the frequency of them has changed every year I've been at the school. They started okay, got a little sparse, and then we've gone a lot, We've gotten a lot better um, this year and this year in particular, you know, we've got one every two or three weeks or so normally, certainly one one every four, about four week gap. 
taking out the you know half terms is the ma- is the maximum. So I had one, you know, the Monday before we broke up. We're on half t- February half term now when we're recording this. So I uh, I had one the Monday before we broke up, and I've got another one the first Monday back, and then about three weeks later I've got another one, and they they're an hour nominally. I can pinch some time here and there because. You know, inset time, um, some inset time will also get devolved to the department. And often, rather than use that in one big block, I'll spread that over the year and say, well, add for lad 15 minutes onto each of these or 10 minutes onto each of these meetings sort of thing to to just give us a bit longer in each one. Um, and so and then we'll, we'll spend the majority of that time talking about maths and, and how we teach maths and, and things like that. You know, you, you, I do. uh other heads of department talk to me a lot and other math teachers talk to me a lot. Uh, and the math teachers, I won't say often now, but sometimes at least frustrated by, you know, all we do in our department meetings is go through behavior and data and things like that. And my, philo- my, my opinion and philosophy has always been, or not always, actually, so I shouldn't say always, but is now at least, now I'm a bit older and a bit more experienced. If you've got a group of people in a room whose profession is to teach mathematics, why would you want to talk about anything else? Mm. Uh, you know, or be, be things that you have to talk about because you're working in a, you know, in a, in a, in a school that might need other things occasionally talking about. So I try and deal with the other things that the school might want me to talk about outside of those times, you know, do things via email or, or whatever else where I can. Uh, but we will spend virtually all of that time talking about ways to teach maths or, or the understanding that we want to have kids to have and what the best way of making sure that happens is. And, and how, how do you structure that, Peter? How do you get that out of your department? What, what, what's the prompt you give staff to, to, yeah. to instigate this discussion? Yeah, that, I mean, that depends. I mean, sometimes it will be, you know, me sharing something and asking people to work on it there and then. Sometimes it will be uh, somebody else bringing an idea or bring thing. There's often, like I say, with this New Year 7 scheme, there's often a particular focus around uh, how we're going to teach those concepts because we want that to be successful. We want that to be something we can build on through seven and eight and nine, so and beyond. So through eight and nine and beyond. So uh, there's normally at least part of that time spent actually looking at the concepts that are going to be coming up on the year seven or eight scheme and and uh, well the year seven scheme at the minute and examining those. You know the people who designed the teaching material for those saying this is why we've done this this is what we've done here and why we think this will work and we will look at that and go well what about this what have you thought, thought about that or actually yeah you know that's that's fine we're happy with that that works we can see why that's important uh i've done one recently where uh i've said to each of the members of the department you know go away um from one meeting that we did uh you know go away and think of a procedure your your could be your favorite procedure a process whatever you want to call it you know a a a method for doing something that's vaguely mathematical with uh, a way of showing why that procedure why that process works in the way that it works uh, they don't have to use manipulative and representation there but those things are available you know we have them quite well stocked in the department and i've made sure of that uh, so they will, you know, we, we did that, uh, half the group, 
fed that back literally at our last meeting and the other half are going to do it on Monday, you know, taking us through a procedure and how we can support making sense of that and what we need to have in place beforehand so that they can, so that kids can make sense of that. So, you know, the, the different prompts, it could be something, it could be something that I'll give them to read and then question about and think about and, and discuss and, and create. Um, Pete, let me ask you this. And again, this is something you, you've alluded to a little bit in terms of your planning when you describe the, the year seven unit. But, but do you think maths departments should have common approaches to teaching some topics, to teaching all topics? Or again, should there be freedom for, for teachers to, to take it in the way that they choose and they see best? Yeah, again, it's an interesting one because, you know, in terms of approaches, when you say approaches, what, what, what we often mean is a process we can take kids through. You know, mm. I am, I am going to get kids to multiply numbers using the grid method, or I am going to get kids to multiply numbers using column multiplication. I am going to get kids to multiply numbers using jealousy or whatever else. And it's sort of, it, it's, it, Within what we're trying to do within the department, those, those conversations be, become almost moot because it's actually what an, this is the understanding I want kids to have about multiplication. And so I want them to see how that understanding leads to a grid method because a grid method links to an area model of multiplication. Uh, I want kids to see how, um, how their their understanding of multiplication leads to formal column methods because formal column methods link to sort of scaling and repeated addition and things of that nature it's all it's all in the book um and i want kids to see how what we one way of thinking or several ways of thinking about multiplication can lead to jealousy and what jealousy might look like um so actually in terms of specifying approaches we look at all three of those you know for multiplication we look at all three and we look at their strengths we look at their drawbacks we see how they arise from uh from what we know about multiplication and so at that point you know it's well <laughs> yeah so we can discuss the approaches we can see the flaws in these different uh these different uh, you know processes these different procedures and then we might we might you know broadly say well you know this is one that perhaps we'll focus on because it's more efficient or whatever else and I'm, I'm uncomfortable with is giving my biases to my students uh i might prefer a certain way that doesn't necessarily mean they are going to want to work in precisely the same way as me you know uh i don't necessarily need them to do exactly everything the way i do things all the time so uh so from that point of view if a kid has reached the necessary understanding of multiplication and prefers to use the grid method over the formal column method and understands where or where may not that might be useful then fine go ahead and do it i don't really mind too much you know the classic one with that is multiplying fractions because there's this big divide where uh, multiply multiply mixed numbers in particular should you turn them into improper fractions or not uh, and a lot of people plump for yes, uh, but there are times when actually multiplying them as two parts is better. You know, it's easier to 
to do that. You, it's more efficient. You reach an answer if that's your got to reach an answer you reach an answer quicker and there are times when you don't and when it's much harder to do that in terms of the the number of calculations and the number of steps that you have to go through in order to get from question to answer so you know to say well we're always going to turn them into improper fractions first is it, it's it's not mathematics, not really, you know, because actually part of the mathematics is the appreciation that sometimes this method will be easier, sometimes that method will be easier in terms of, and again, the word easier here, it, it, broadly meaning in terms of being more efficient to achieve an answer, less calculation steps. Um, but, you know, I actually want my kids to understand both of those. I want to understand why those two methods work and why something like doing four and a half times two and a quarter, I can't just do four times two and a half times a quarter and leave it at that. I want them to understand why that doesn't work. And so, you know, for, in terms of common approach, expose kids to a variety, make sure they understand how these things arise, these, you know, these algorithms, these these processes arise from what we already understand about the concept and then use the one that's most appropriate to the situation. Got it. Got it. And last couple of questions on department, Pete. Um, this is something I, you couldn't pay me to be a head of department. I don't think I have any interest in it whatsoever. And the, the reason is... Um, all the heads of department that I've worked for, their their teaching suffered. It, it's it's no longer been their their top priority because, as you spoke about yourself, they have to deal with a whole host of other issues. I like the idea of the the kind of planning out the schemes of work and resourcing, but I, I can do that with, with, without being head of department. But head of department to me, you're just bogged down in all the crap you're getting from SLT, all the kind of pastoral behaviour issues within the department, and so on. So. How do you stop your own teaching suffering with, with all the other stuff that you have to deal with? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there is this other stuff you've got to do. You've got to support teachers with behavior. Um, where, you know, if kids are being difficult or whatever else. You've got to meet with parents. You've got to do you've got to do this. You've got to do that paperwork, etc. But the the, the the meat of your, what you're doing is still around teaching. You know, my number one priority in being a head of department is to make my teachers better teachers of maths. And to do that, I have to keep developing my own teaching. So if I'm going to keep developing my own, you know, developing my keeping, developing my own teaching is central to what I've got to be and what I've got to do as a head of maths. So, I mean, in practicality, what does that mean? It means that. I've got to try and put the cut the time needed for those other things to a, to a bare minimum, uh, you know. And I've got to that means sometimes I've got to use the influence that I have as a head of mass across the school to say, well, actually, you know, this this thing that you're asking me to do, senior leadership, it, it's too unwieldy, it takes too long, it, it's it's not going to have the impact that you want to have. Can we look at this again? Uh, which is sometimes successful, sometimes not. Um, you know, this, this dealing with behavior, you've got to streamline the processes as much as you can to reach resolutions as quickly as possible because it's all that, that's all sort of side business. And the main business is make people better teachers of maths. And you can't do that if your own teacher of teaching is going backwards. 
Got it. Fantastic. And final question for you, Peter. If, if we've got an aspiring head of department listening here, have you any, any pearls of wisdom, any final bits of advice for them? <laughs> um, listen a lot. Work with pe- people. Like I said before, work with people. You know, don't think that you're going in there to, you know, even if a, even if a situation has been bad previously, you know, and, and things aren't where the school wants or the department wants in terms of maths don't think that you're going in there as somebody who's going to rescue it single-handedly sort of thing because that is the road to an awful lot of stress and an awful lot of sleepless nights <laughs> uh you know you've got they are your team and you've got to work with them as a team you've got to listen to your team you've got to collaborate with your team uh, you've got to understand things before you can realistically expect to make successful changes in them. Got it. Okay, Pete. So it is time to turn our attention to your book. I mean, you've already plugged it left, right and centre during this conversation. So <laughs> we, we better get to it at some stage. So um, t- tell us a bit about it. First of all, wh- why did you want to write it? and who, Who's the intended audience? Yeah, so I mean, I wanted to write it ultimately because I felt there was a need for it. You know, there was a need for um, for teachers to to have access to information, understanding about sort of how manipulatives and how imagery can be used to support mathematics teaching. You know, in particular, used to support making sense of uh, mathematical concepts. You know, and people have. Um, People have been introduced to certain images. You know, the bar model has become quite popular now within certainly certain aspects of primary and secondary teaching. Uh, but when whenever something like that comes along and, you know, I say comes along, I know I'll get hammered for this because it's been around an awfully long time, but but has been repopularized within the UK. Um, and so when, but whenever something like that happens, you get people who begin to apply it without the sort of necessary background understanding of what it's meant to do and what it's for. Uh, you know, and I've seen a lot of people now using the bar model as a new process to teach ratio questions, solving ratio questions by, or a new process to link, um, f- you know, fractions with decimals and things like that. Uh, and that's really not what it's about. It's about, you know, allowing students, pupils to make sense of a concept so they can see how it's connected to other concepts and so they can build these connections you know cognitive science is quite clear on the need to build these schema these connected related ideas and the bar model is 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 one way of doing that and there are other ways and i thought you know people need to 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 see this, to hear this, to understand that that's what the aim of these things is about. It's about making sense of. So, you know, for me, um, teaching anybody who teaches maths, really, if they, if you know, if they're interested in, and they, if they're using manipulative, using imagery to help make sense of things, or if they're using them and they're not doing that, you know, or if they're interested in doing that, then that's who who I would like to to see buying it it was an interesting um conversation actually with the publisher because the publisher was at first a little shaky on this you know in terms of well half of it seems to be about the primary curriculum and half of it seems to be about broadly the secondary curriculum 
um, you know, at least in terms of what's described in the national curriculum outlines. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it was, I even had to explain to them, you know, that actually if you're teaching this, you need to be aware of the journey. You need to, you need to understand what's come for, what's come before. And if you're teaching the early parts, you need to understand how that's built upon so that actually you get this coherent, connected journey through mathematics. Um, and that's what basically the book is designed to outline for certain concepts within mathematics. I mean, it's obviously not got every mathematical idea in there. It would be a much bigger book and it would take much longer to write. Uh, but for certain, you know, for certain easily connected concepts. So you can collect, you can connect the idea of number with the idea of operation, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, powers quite easily. You can connect the ideas of accuracy to that fairly, you know, there's a fairly strong connection there. You can connect algebraic manipulations to that fairly, fairly easily. There's a fairly strong connection there, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, that's what it's about basically is about sort of taking certain big concepts that we teach in, in, in mathematics that form part of this journey that we try and take kids on. And, and show how they're connected, how we can make sense of those connections and how we can use manipulatives and imagery to to make to help students make sense of them so that we can build upon. Got it. F fantastic. Now, there are two reasons why I, I really enjoyed the book, Pete. Um, the first is I, I'd not read anything quite like it. I, th I think you're right. I think I think there, there is a need for this, a kind of a, a coherent approach that, that brings everything together. Uh, but also because it's it's an area of weakness of mine. Um, I, I make no kind of attempt to hide this. That's why I had Bernie Westercott on showing me how to use stuff. Helen Williams destroying me using these butter beans and all this kind of stuff it's, it's not how i it's not how i teach mathematics i i'm i very much use kind of things like desmos um, and uh, jojoba and things like that for 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 topics that are obviously visual to me so graphs is obviously visual and geometry is obviously visual but for things like fractions and for things like order of operations and some of the algebraic concepts I don't introduce them um, or I don't support students with them um, in this in this visual manner. So it, it was fascinating for me. So what I asked you to do, Peter, I asked you to pick out your three kind of favorite visual approaches or just three that you think would be of, of most interest to listeners. And what I'm going to ask listeners to do at this stage is um, if you obviously if you're driving in the car, this, this could be very dangerous to do. So so don't do this. But if, if you're at home, if you go to the show notes page um, that, that this podcast is on, you, you'll find the three images that that Pete's about to 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 to, to speak about, um, or later on you can refer back to these. And um, but these are three visual ways of approaching three kind of very different topics. And Pete's going to take us through it, and I'm going to try and get my head around it. And I'll again, I'll be interrupting left, right, and centre. So, what what are we going to? Which one are we going to go for first, Pete? Yeah. Or of course, the one thing they could do is if they've already bought the book, they could turn to the the port the part the parts in the book uh, that refer to them. That would be better because these are obviously three isolated images. And one of the things that's important in this is the use of multiple representation, multiple ways of seeing things, multiple ways of appreciating things uh, in order to, to build that solid foundation. So I've chosen three, two of which I've chosen because. I, I feel that they are important and that in a lot of places they're done quite badly, truth be told. And one, just because it was the first one that, that 
really hit home with me and allowed me to see the power of these uh, of the ideas. Um, just for clarity, though, Craig, visual approaches. I mean, there's not an approach to doing this. It's not you know take students through these steps or anything else. It's how can I make sense of? So the first one I've chosen is order of operations, uh, and the i you know how do we make sense of the idea that operations have a hierarchy that needs to be applied, that needs to be followed when we're working with multi-stage calculations or multi-operation calculations. Uh, and part of that is to do with understanding the laws of arithmetic. So we have commutative law, we have the associative law, we have the distributive law. The commutative and associative laws apply to addition and multiplication. The distributive law applies to uh, two operations at a time, so both multiplication and division will distribute over both addition and subtraction, but not the other way around. Uh, and then when you start throwing powers in there, that gets a little bit more interesting as well, because pow powers will distribute over some and won't distribute over others and, and things like that. But I don't want to go about that too much. So what I'm interested in here is students seeing why certain calculations that involve multiple operations the order doesn't matter, and but in certain calculations they do. So we'll look at calculations like, you know, five add three subtract two, or five add three minus two, to use the correct terminology there, uh, and why the order of that doesn't matter. And again, we can use representation to show that if we understand things about addition and subtraction, we can use what we understand about addition and subtraction to show that the order there doesn't matter. But then the one I've chosen for... Go on, Craig. Yes, yeah, sorry, mate. Just before we dive in, can, can, because this, I know Mark McCourt's always banging on about this. Well, how should I be saying that? What, what was it? Five add three. Can I not Mark, say? Can I not say subtract two? Well, 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 so why am I, this, why yeah, am I going this, wrong there? This is this is uh, this is Mark more than me, to be fair. Uh, and this is something that I picked up from Mark as well. Right. Minus is the verb. Okay. Um, so when you do a subtraction, you minus. So if I'm doing a uh, a subtraction, I am minusing, kind of. I don't like that, but you get the idea. Uh, well, this, is add, add, this is what Mark adds, says anyway. So adds the verb, but Sorry? subtract adds the verb, but subtract isn't. Is this right? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need. Um, you really need to talk. He's coming to back Mark on. I'm that. gonna have to get him back on. He, 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 does, <laughs> my head in, he does my head in with these Twitter polls because I, I always get them wrong. So right, I'll, I'll pick that up. I'll pick that up with yeah. him, Pete. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, well, neg negative, negative. The one that's clear is negative. Is is sort of the the noun. Yes, I'm happy, I'm happy with that. But I'm I say I'm sticking saying subtract three there, no matter what he says there. But I'll, I'll bring I'll bring that up with him next time I see him. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Go go back on to this bit. This is super. No worries. Awesome. So so yeah. We, we look at and I think it's you know and I'd say this in the book and we do this in in the, the scheme of learning that, that we work on in schools that uh, work on in my school that it's important to look at calculations that have multiple operations where the order doesn't matter mm. as much as as much as when it does yes. but the one I've chosen is where the calculations where order is important and I've picked a fairly simple example where you've got four times three add five and you've got five add four times three and so what we're demonstrating is that these things have different answers if all we do is read them left to right. They look different. Yeah, I don't even like different answers. They look different if you read them left to right. And if I uh, just describe for, for people who are, who are driving here, so we've got the, the four times three add five. You're, you're displaying as four blocks of three 
with a block of five added on to the end. We're going from, from left to right. And the five plus four multiplied by three, you have got a five block and a four block, then another five block and a four block, then another five block and a four block. And you, it's very, very clear from this image that there, there's a significant difference between those two. Yeah. So the idea here is we're thinking about, right, what, does uh, what do we know one of one of the ways we can think about multiplication so if we're thinking about four times three then then add five uh what what are the ways we can think about multiplication and one of the ways that we can think about multiplication which is quite straightforward is repeatedly adding a number so and you know this is this is pretty much the way that multiplication is introduced to most students that you you know four times three means take three and add it four times or take four and add it three times you know some people say the order of that was important others don't i don't mm. i'm not really interested in that too much so i have taken something that is worth three and i have added it to itself four times i created a chain of four of those yes. um and then i've added five and yes. this so you know if i'm doing this with kids in class i might be saying to them something like well show me four times three you know, and they might use four three rods. And we're using Cuisinaire rods with this, the images of Cuisinaire rods. So they might show me four three rods. They might show me three four rods. I don't really mind. I, I might be more specific and I might say, show me four times three as a repeated addition, something like that. You know, because we understand that multiplication has these different ways of thinking about it. And that's the one I particularly want them to do. But I don't really, again, I don't really mind too much at this point. OK, now show me that add five. OK, I'm not really in, in, even interested in the answer to that. I'm not interested that the answer to that is 17. I don't really care too much about that. And that's one of the things that, you know, you have to get kids away from sometimes is that, oh, you know, I've got to evaluate that. I don't really care about what that evaluates to be. So then I've said, right. So in the next image, it's OK. So let's switch those around. OK, because we should be able to switch them around. Addition is commutative. And this is where the commutative law comes in. You know, addition is commutative. And if I'm adding these two things, the thing that's on the right hand side of the addition and the things the thing that's on the left hand side of the addition should be able to be swapped around. Mm. That's a law of arithmetic. That's the way arithmetic works. That's one of the things that we know that arithmetic does. Um, so then it's like, right, so let's switch this around. Let's switch these two parts of the sum around. Show me five, add four. And so you get a five rod and a four rod connected together. Yes. And then show, show me that repeated three times. Now, what I could have done there is replace the five rod and the four rod with a nine rod and then repeated the nine rod three mm. times. Or I, you know, I could just do what I did, which is copy the five and the four rod repeated three times. And so there we are. We've now got that. And so the point is that these are different. So what that means is that if you've got, if these two things, if these two things are can be read from left to right and can just be evaluated left to right then they should be giving the same answer because they should be commutative but they're not giving the same answer which means that reading one of these from left to right breaks the commutative law of addition and multiplication well addition in particular in that case okay it breaks it breaks the commutative law the commutative law isn't working here so the only recourse we have is to say well one of these is not cannot be read left to right yes if one, of, one of these one of these if it's being read left to right it's not working in the way that arithmetic is working and so then you can go on to show that 
that actually, okay, so we can use grouping symbols and brackets and things like that um, to explain why the multiplication has to be done before the addition in there. You know, and we can show, we, we can show that, that actually taking the five and then adding the three, four rods or the four, three rods creates something that's the same. So that's the solution to that break of the law of arithmetic. And that's what that's what that is sort of designed to do. It's designed to say that, you know, this breaks this breaks arithmetic. Arithmetic works in a particular way. If we think about this calculation like this or these two calculations like that, then arithmetic breaks down. Something's gone wrong. So how do we put that right? Because we know that this must be a way that arithmetic works. Got it. And is this um, is, is this cognitive conflict, Pete? Is this kind of setting students up almost for a for a surprise, a shock? Because, again, you look at that, the four times three plus five and you look at the five plus four times three. You, you think of students experience with addition. It's always worked from primary school, swapping your numbers around. Everybody's happy with that. It seems like this should work, but then there's a very visual, powerful way to show them that it doesn't. That's then a surprise, and then that then leads them into being kind of almost primed to to hear the the way that it should work. Is 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 this is 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 it part of the power of this that, or is or am I talking nonsense? That yeah, no, I suppose you could you could see it that way. Certainly, I mean, it, you could set it up like that. Definitely, you know, you could set it up like that for that to be something that kids aren't expecting. Um, you could set it up in different ways where you you know where you could say well we're going to demonstrate that these two things are not the same and then it wouldn't be uh you know it wouldn't be um a shock that they're not the same because kids are expecting them mm. not to be the same you know and that's where when i spoke earlier about you know teachers bringing their own individuality to that i can't you know there might be slight pros and cons to one of those ways of saying it or, or others or you know different ways or a number of different ways you could do that with to lead students to that to that awareness um but then there are probably pros and cons to each of them but you know that would depend on the teacher and their style and their the 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 way they like to interact and work with with students some some teachers will want to set that conflict up and other teachers and it would depend on the class that they've got in front of them as well some teachers will know that setting that up in that is not going to help them reach that awareness reach that understanding and for other classes it will so uh, you know, I'm not overly fussy in that regard as to whether that is a, comes as a surprise to kids or not. But certainly you could set it up like that. Got it. And can, can I just check, just, just to clarify, Pete, this is before any mention of the order of operations or bid mass or whatever you want to call it. This is this precedes that. Is that right? And this is the way into then understanding why we have a need for the, these order of operations and these these kind of rules that, that go along with that. Yes. I mean, we don't use the word bid mass or any of that. You know, it's the, the idea of bid mass or PEMDAS or GEMS or whatever sort of bit is it's not something that you know that i want kids shortcutting to because there shouldn't be shortcutting this process they shouldn't be shortcutting in my opinion at least they shouldn't be shortcutting this idea but yes you know this is a sort of so we do this at the beginning of our key learning point around understanding why operations have a hierarchy um, and when we you know when we 
put that into when, when, when we approach that with kids, uh, we first of all only we do very similar to that. We only look at multiplication and addition to start with and demonstrate and, and, ex, and explore and explain why they need a hierarchy and then we can build that okay so if they have a hierarchy what else does and stuff like that and that's the point where you can go a little bit quicker uh because kids are used to the idea that these things actually have a hierarchy these things matter the order of these things matters got it and can i just ask you just before we because this is absolutely fascinating this mate can i can i ask where does it go from here so so once we've we've got this diagram here we've established that they're different um, then I, I can see kind of two ways. There's either the need to introduce brackets on the uh, um, to, to to kind of get get them get them the same, or there's the need to start talking about um, which order we do things and so on and so forth. It, w- which way do you which way do you go with this? And and is there uh, it, again is it another diagram that follows it up? So we'd aim to do both. Ultimately, we'd aim to say that you know if we want the outcome to be the bottom picture then we are then the established thing to do is to use a grouping symbol to yes. use brackets okay but the other but the other side of that we do want to say you know without grouping symbols we want we need these to have the same answer arithmetic doesn't work otherwise unless these things have the same answer so what do we do how do we make sense of this line if the, you know the second calculation if it's got to have the same answer as the first, or how do we make sense of the first line if it's got to have the second same answer as the second? The first line fits with what we what we're used to seeing. The second line, you know, repeating a sum like that, not we've seen it with the distributive law, and that's the sort of key thing. There is we recognise that this five add four repeated three times is what we're used to seeing with the distributive law. And the distributive law requires brackets. So actually, because we've already worked with the distributive law, because we've made sense of what that looks like, then we can see that this bottom picture almost should have brackets in it. It should be the result of something that is bracketed. So the fact that it doesn't have brackets in means that we can't just be reading that left to right and that the the correct thing to do there and the the correct way to imagine that calculation is to imagine the four times three being multiplied and then the five added and we can show that you know you can show it with a five rod and then four uh three rods and that brings those you can see that those two things are the same if you but you have to consider that part of the sum first as it were Got it. And, and can I ask this? This may be on to a kind of wider point that we'll probably pick up once we've gone through these three things. But just to ask you now, Pete, whilst this kind of demonstration is happening, and I, I know that you've built these images using a math spot that we'll talk about talk about yep. later, and obviously this can be projected on the board. Do the kids have these rods in front of them, both A, for this particular kind of example, and B, whenever they then go ahead to, to, to practice, to work through order of operations questions, do they have the rods with them then? as well uh ideally certainly in the at least in the making sense stage mm. you know when we're making sense of why this uh why these two things are not the same what how you know what this second calculation actually looks like we're trying to make sense of this and you know so i really should be working with it and i should be manipulating it uh, in order to help me make sense of it uh, the point at which they come away from that is going to be different for each each student you know and it's going to depend on how and when they make sense of it 
and how and when they feel they've made enough sense of it that they don't need those in order to make sense of the next of the next question of the next thing they're asked to do the next thing they need to make sense of um so some will you know they'll be there and they can use them and some will use them all the way through and others won't and eventually what you're trying to do particularly those that that are using them a little bit longer is you're trying to prompt them with certain understandings that mean they can safely move away from it because you know you don't want them having to use the rods forever yes. uh, that's certainly not you know that would be that would be counterproductive certainly to what it what it is you, the rods are aiming to do because then the rods become a crutch or whatever yes. it is you're working with becomes a crutch that they that they rely on and you don't want them relying on that you want them to use that to make sense of what's happening and then once they've made sense of it they don't need to use those as much so you can prompt them to certain things you know does does this always happen do you always have to do that and once they start to recognize that actually they, that there's certain things that happen all the time then they can say oh yeah okay so i've made sense of that now and i can start putting that away but occasionally you know and uh, people see this sometimes as as a sort of transition from concrete to pictorial to abstract and it's not it's messy it's back and forth so sometimes there'll be a situation that looks different and oh i need to get the rods out to help me make sense of that again oh but now i can make so now i see and now i can now i now i made sense of that now i understand what's happening there so now i don't need the rods to to do that you know and i know this is one of the things of going off topic, I know, but with ratio, you know, some people will insist on using ratio, the bar model all the way through a ratio question. And no, use the bar model, use the bar model to make sense of the question. And when you've got enough sense of what's happening, then you can just go back to calculation or you can go into algebra or whatever else, because the model is a tool to make sense of the thing until you have enough of an understanding that you don't need it anymore that, that's interesting that pete does that does that go because one thing i really picked up from from speaking to, to helen williams is that one of her big kind of beefs is that and i think mark, mark mccourt even put this on, on twitter at one point that the that these visual approaches um are seen by some students as as the kind of thing you go to if you're struggling and that once once you've kind of got your head around it you essentially forget the visual approach and then you, you crack on with either algorithmic or or, or whatever other method and you want to go, go to but what helen williams's point was that these should always be available to students and um, to, to, to kind of help them to to extend them to challenge their thinking and i think mark's point um, that, that he mentioned on twitter was that sometimes it can require an even greater depth of thought to be able to represent problems in these visual ways and so on and so forth so is there is there do you agree with either of those viewpoints is is there a danger that if it's just used for sense making and then then put to one side that that, that something's lost there the kind of journey isn't complete does any of that make sense yeah, well, I mean, when you talk about sense making, you might have, you know, a problem might be presented in a in a in a way that you need to make sense of. Mm. You know, so the fact that you've made sense of, you know, how to calculate speed, you know, and you understand why that when you calculate when you need to calculate speed, you need to take a distance and divide it by a time. Yeah. And, you you know, you can understand that. And that's all well and good. That's all fine. 
but then I I might present you with a problem that's that's just tweaked or changed a little bit. You know, maybe the maybe the speed is given, maybe the time is given in hours and hours and minutes. Yes. Or maybe you know the um, the the distance is. Uh, given in meter, or if you're doing, you know, distance and speed to create time, maybe the distance is given in kilometers and the speed is given in meters per second or something like that, you know. And I might then have to, I might then have to use a bit of support to make sense of that. And so I might want to go back to my, you know, bit rods, bit bar model, bit whatever. I might have to go back to that in order to make sense of it. And that shouldn't be seen as a failure. That shouldn't be seen as something only the you know the kids that don't have understanding do because the whole point about understanding is there are, it, it branches off and it leads to other things and so you know i understand this and my understanding grows and grows and grows the more i'm exposed to different ways of being tested or having to think about an idea and so you know i might need to go all the way back to getting the rods out again to help me make sense of this or i might just be able to draw a picture of it or i might immediately be able to make sense of this because of what i've done before different kids will will be at different points and will need different tools at different stages in order to make sense of what's going on so i kind of i get helen's point they should always be there because you never 100 percent well, they should at least be accessible because you're never going to be 100 percent sure that every kid is going to make sense of whatever it is you're doing, even if it's only a very small step from something you've done before without then coming back to those, you know, to that uh, to those tools, to that visual model or to that um, that manipulative. But at the same token, you do. I don't <laughs> In terms of, you know, moving to algorithmic approaches and things like that that Mark is saying, and I hope I interpret him rightly when I say this, I think what he's talking about there is move is being able to work just with the algorithm because we understand enough about the situation to see how and why the algorithm is going to be applied. Got it. Um, and so, you know, that comes when I have enough understanding, enough sense of this problem that I can see it's a, you know, it's a, that I'm going to have to do this, I'm going to have to do that, you know. Again, take the example, it's a, speed's a great example for that. If I understand division, if I really understand division, then actually I can look at a speed problem and I can see why that is a division problem. And so I can see that all I need to do is apply the division algorithm and, you know, whatever that might be, it might be that actually the numbers are simple enough that I can use my, my known multiplication facts to do that division. It might be that I have to resort to a formal division algorithm, whatever. But I can apply that and I can work purely in the abstract because I've already got enough sense of division to recognize this as a division problem. Other kids might look at the speed problem and not immediately recognize that it's a division problem. So we might draw it or we might get some manipulative out to help them make sense of the fact that this speed problem is looks the same as other division problems that they've done. Yes. And so once they recognize that this speed problem or calculating speed in general is just the same as other division problems that they've come across, then 
they don't need the model anymore. They don't need to draw pictures anymore. They can just, oh yeah, I, I remember now. Now this is just a vision. Got it. And that's okay. that's the that's the idea. That's what you. That's what I think both Helen and Mark are talking about in their own way. And certainly that's the way I see these things. Got it. That, that, I think I'm I think I'm getting mad around it. But I tell you what, we we need to dive into this fractions division, Pete, because this is yeah. this has been a source of, of, of kind of bit of conflict for me over the years and I, and I talk about this exact kind of uh, this exact example in in my book about how for me this is a classic case of I would show students how to do it first and then I would return to the why and it's interesting here because you've got this visual approach to fraction division and again people can look this up either in the show notes or in your book but I'll I'll do my best to describe this and um, and then I'll and then I'm going to talk about my kind of view of this and I'm going to hand over to you. So so the question you, you illustrate or the problem you illustrate is one third divided by two fifths. And you have a diagram here and you, you, you put in the text below in the diagram, the yellow bar represents one third. So we've got a yellow bar here that takes up five um, kind of squares on the grid. And then you've got and the green bar represents one fifth. And um, so you've got a green bar below that that's taken up by three squares. And then you've actually got another green bar next to that because the problem is one third divided by, um, uh, sorry, uh, you've got another green bar below because the problem is one third divided by two fifths. So we've got a yellow bar, uh, which is uh, five across. And then below it, we've got two green bars, which are three across. And then the sentence is, this shows that two fifths is to one third as six is to five or as one is to five sixths. Now, I, I I think I've got my head around it, but I had to do a lot of thinking um, f to pull that in to understand that. Now, my question to you, Pete, is one, my immediate thought is flipping it. That's, that's complicated. That's hard. But am I just thinking that because I'm imagining my students who've not been brought up on this, what I'm referring to as a kind of visual diet, they don't fully understand what division is. They've not seen division represented in that way, in this particular way. And is that... And I haven't. So is, is is that why I'm struggling to grasp this? Or is this actually quite complex? Yeah, so that would be the hope. Uh, and obviously, in this example, there is an awful lot of the journey left out, both about division and about fractions. So you have to understand with this, and I've spoken about this before at conferences and things like that, that when we're thinking about division, how do we make sense of division? And, and the most common ways of making sense of division are to do with grouping and sharing of things. Yeah. So let's take a very simple division to start with. Let's take the division 12 divided by four. So when I'm first thinking about what division is, I might, uh, I might look at that and say, right, well, or I might, you know, prompt kids to, to look at it and say, right, so here's 12 counters. Split them up into piles of four. Yeah. And I might say this is one way that we're looking at that we can think about this operation division. This is one of the ways that division manifests itself uh, in a way, although I wouldn't use that terminology for kids. But you get the idea. You know, this is one of the ways that we have of making sense of what it, of what this abstract calculation one followed by a two followed by this uh, obvious sign followed by a four. That's one of the ways of making sense of what that means. Yeah. Yes. Creating groups of four. Another way of thinking about division and making sense of that division is to say, right, take that same 12 counters and split it into four equal shares. 
And of course, you'll end up with three counters in each share. And that's another way of thinking about that division. And these ways are different, but they are fairly common. You know, most kids will have seen one or both of them. Primary schools tend to do quite a good job of, of introducing those. There is a third way of thinking about division, and it's one that I'm quite passionate about, which is why I've chosen to choose this, put this particular example in, even though I'm aware that it's right at the end of the, well, not right at the end, but a significant way along the journey of understanding both division and fractions. Um, and that third way of thinking about it is what we call multiplicative comparison. Now, comparison is a very powerful idea in mathematics. We do it all the time in an additive way. You know, if I ask you, uh, what's the difference between nine and four? You'll, you'll tell me five. Hopefully, and, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, you're very quickly able to compare those two numbers in an additive way. Or if I say, you know, what's the difference between 12 and four to keep the same numbers? What's the difference between 12 and four? Hopefully, you would tell me eight. And that's a way of seeing subtraction, additive yes. comparison. Yeah, it's an additive comparison. Well, the akin to that is this multiplicative comparison broadly roughly how many times bigger is 12 than 4 and this is one that we don't do typically we don't do such a good job of introducing kids to and it's why a lot of kids get help and I, I believe i don't have the evidence to back this up but i believe this is what a number of kids struggle with interpreting certain problems as division problems because actually there are certain problems that only make sense as a division problem if you understand that one of the ways of seeing division is is as a multiplicative comparison between two numbers. I alluded earlier to um, distance. If you're com if you're looking at distance and speed to calculate time, you know why why do you divide? distance by speed in order to calculate time well it's because you're comparing it's because you're comparing how far you can go in an hour with this other distance and trying to figure out how long it takes so if i can go three miles in one hour and i need to go nine miles or let's use the same numbers if i if i can go four miles in one hour and i need to go 12 miles how long will that take you're doing a comparison mm. yeah and that's the division now multiplicative comparison as a division is a really powerful idea for division there are lots of divisions that can only be made sense of in that way and if you understand division in that way then actually fraction division and understanding why two fractions divide the way we do becomes quite straightforward and so what you would hope is that if you work if you if if you work with kids to allow them to see division in that way then by the time you get to wanting to divide fractions, then actually this is fine because it looks no different to other divisions that I have done and that I have experience of. You know, division is about compare or can be about comparing two numbers in a multiplicative way. I am looking at these two numbers and I am seeing how they compare in a multiplicative way. Well, they compare in the same way that five compares to six because I can yeah. see that yellow bar as five and I can see those two little bars, uh, which actually for proper quiz and error, I think shouldn't be green, but never mind. Um, I can see those two little bars as a total of six. So I can see that's how five compares to six. So I can see that a third, a third and two fifths in a multiplicative way compare in the same way that five compares to six. Now, the point about it being one is that this is something you work with kids to, to get them to be able to see 
the result of a division through multiplicative comparison straightforwardly. And the question is always, and I've done this before in, in conference presentations, the question is always, what if this is one? Right. And this is why this looks back right to the beginning, actually. One of the reasons why I love the number one, because it's the identity <laughs> element of multiplication. You know, what if this is one? Because one of the things we know, of course, is if you're dividing by one, then the the result of that is 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 just whatever you're di- whatever you were divided by what you're you know if you think about it a fraction what your numerator is uh what your div- dividend is the proper word what your dividend is because if your divisor is one then you divide the, the quotient and the dividend are the same so one way when you're comparing these numbers a nice way of thinking about the result of that division is to think about, well, what if that number was worth one? What if this thing here was worth one? And if this thing here is worth one, when then whatever that thing is worth is both the dividend and the quotient of my division. So in this case, because we want to divide by two fifths, we want to divide by the bottom picture. We're looking at, okay, so what if that that's total length of those two green bars is one whole, and that's where your fraction understands. That's where you need to have journeyed a little bit with fractions to know that if that is one, then the what, then the thing above it is five at five sixths of that distance. It sounds complicated, and it's hard to explain in two or three minutes because what we're talking sure. about is uh, is several, you know, several months, possibly several years of a journey about and through understanding division and what division does and the different ways that we can see division. But without it, it's actually very difficult to... I mean, there are other ways of, of explaining why, you know, you flip the second fraction when you divide and you turn into a multiplier. There are other ways of explaining that. But actually, for me, they're harder than just building up a proper understanding of division right from when you first talk about division. Well, let me ask you this, Pete. So again, I find this absolutely fascinating. This um, there was a couple of things really, and the first is whenever I um, did the video podcast with with Bernie Westacott, he and we spoke about negative numbers. He kept going back to this idea of zero pairs, the the fact that you have a, a plus one and a, a minus one, and they're a zero pair. That was a fundamental, fundamentally important concept for a lot of the work he did on on negative numbers. And it strikes me that this this idea of going back to one is a similar thing that that if students haven't got that established then a lot of the work on on division and multiplicative reason it just it just can't happen because it's such a fundamental idea that's so it the, yeah, yeah. And the, it's, what... it's entirely analogous you know that's the point yes. when you're talking about subtraction i mean subtraction and division are kind of paired so you're talking about subtraction so let's think about a, a negative subtraction of a negative number let's think about five subtract negative three yeah. So let me ask you this, Craig. If you did five, if we think about five subtract negative three, yeah. What if you made the negative three zero? What would you have to do? What would you have to do to make the negative three zero? So you need to um, add on. Well, I've got to be careful my language here, but add add on three. Add three. Yeah. Fine. I don't. The language will will you know will field marks complaints. <laughs> But uh, you'd add on three, yeah? So if you add on three to that, you're going to need to add on three to the other thing as well, aren't you? Because mm. we're talking about the difference of two numbers. So we're moving this up. So you picture on a number line. Number line's great for this thing. You picture this. You're looking at five. You're looking at negative three. 
and you think about you're thinking about the subtraction as the difference between those two numbers now i need to know that subtraction can be viewed as the difference between two numbers otherwise i can't make sense of that at all but assuming i do know that one of the ways of thinking about subtraction is to think about the difference between two numbers then i can say right well whatever i however i move this negative three I must move the five in the same way. And I'm standing here literally waving my, hand, my hands in front of me to keep them the same distance apart. So however I move this negative three, if I move the five in the same way, then I keep the same difference. So I keep the same answer to the subtraction. So if I move the negative three to zero, like you say, by moving it up three, by adding three, mm. then as long as I move the five, by, the five up by the same amount, I will keep the same difference. The answer won't change, you know, and, and kids can understand that. This is, there's nothing there that a kid can't understand. So what you end up with is the calculation eight subtract zero. Yes. So what you end up with there is the, 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 the lead number being the same as the answer. And this is the same idea, but with multiplicative comparison, with division instead of subtraction. You know, it's if I'm do, doing 12 divided by four, what do I, what if I make that first number one? Now, actually, that doesn't help me too much just in terms of in terms of calculation for that, because how do I make four into one? Well, I divide mm. by four, which means I'm going to divide 12 by four, and I'm just trying to do that anyway. But if I make sense of that division in this way, then actually, although it doesn't necessarily help me too much with that division, it becomes a really powerful model that I can bring back and use to help make sense of later divisions, where it does help, where it does help me see why the ans why the way of doing this division is what it is why this process works in the way it does and why this algorithm works in the way it does and if you you know if you have kids that understand that making the divisor one is an important aspect of division then actually that division becomes child's play because then you can just ask the question. So mathematically, numerically, how do I make two-fifths into one? Well, I multiply it by five halves. So I'm multiplying the third by five halves as well. And, oh, look, now it's one and blah, blah, blah. Now I'm just left with a third times five halves. And you, that process, that movement from the model to the calculation can be quite quick if I understand that making the divisor one is an important part of multiplicative comparison, which is an important part of division. So actually, when I'm, when I'm you know, going back to the planning um, sequence of lessons, because mm. obviously that was about fractions, when I'm planning this, and when I'm planning division in my first unit, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that down the line, and I'm thinking, right, I need them to understand that this is an aspect of division, because I'm going to need that here. I'm going to need that much later down the road. And it's, it's, it's having that awareness of, you know, where things are going and where an idea is going and how, what kids are going to have to be able to see in order to make sense of this idea far in the future. So that when I am first allowing them to form this concept in their minds, that I'm exposing that part of it. So that's a long roundabout way of saying that. It is complicated if that's your first exposure to it. Yeah, and that's I think not uh, your first exposure to it. If you've been exposed to this idea of division all the way through your understanding of division, then actually this is no more complicated than any other division. Yeah, I, I think I think that makes perfect sense, Pete. And I really appreciate you you going into into detail um, in that. One thing, and just before we move on to the the, the final uh, the final uh, kind of visual um, 
I've got to be careful saying visual approach because I know that's not not <laughs> the right language, but um, you know what I mean. Um, before we move on to the final one, one thing I, I, I kind of picked up whilst I was reading your book, and I wonder whether you agree with this or not, is that there are some of these, I'm going to just stick to saying visual approach, there are some of these approaches that you can you can just use straight away and an example for that for me would be this completing the square one if i've got a year 11 class who i'm about to teach completing the square to and they have never been t- uh, they they haven't gone through this kind of diet of these these visual approaches since you know age four or five or anything like that for me it doesn't matter with something like the completing the square one i think that's going to be a really useful thing that i could give to a child at any stage to understand why completing the, the square works whereas something like fractions divi- the fraction division example unless they've been through that kind of diet that that experience for years and years and years it's probably not going to be suitable so what what would you agree with that, Pete? That there are some yeah, things I, that I you can kind that. of there are some things you can kind of pick and choose and use straight away, and then at the other end there are some things that require you know six or seven years worth of, of experience to to be able to look at that fractions model and think yeah I get that, and then there are a whole host of things kind of in between that require certain amounts of background knowledge. Well, would that be fair or not? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's I think I think there are some things that actually you know require very little in terms of prior things that you need to have made sense before. Yes. Um, and completing the square is, is probably, is, you know, the example we're going to talk about is probably one of those things. You need to have a little bit of understanding around how we can think about algebra as area um, and multiplication as area, in particular, sorry, I shouldn't use algebra as area, but multiplication as area to understand the square uh, and even the one and the X bar as well. Um, but in terms of actually, you know, the idea of completing the square, there's not a huge amount of um, things that you need to have made sense of beforehand in order to be able to do it. Yes. You know, and this and this is the thing again, you know, you've got to be careful about being able to do it as opposed to understanding what it means and what it and what it's saying and why it's important and all the rest of it. There's there's a bit more understanding than need there. But there's not a lot you need to have a prior understanding of in order to be able to make sense of the idea of completing the square as a concept. You know, I am tr- I am trying to create a complete square. Yes. I'm trying to arrange these in a way that creates a complete square. And if I can't do that, I'm trying to get as close as possible. You know, you don't need you don't need an awful lot of background understanding to understand that that's the that's the concept of completing the square. So so let me just ask you just before we go into the completing the square one, yeah. final question on the fractions, and I just want to play devil's advocate here, Pete. Say you had a let's let's say year ten group even. So we're not even talking year eleven. So we're not talking crisis point here. We're not talking six weeks before GCSE and kids can't divide fractions. We're talking two years before GCSE. You've got a year ten group and they can't divide fractions. What are you doing? Are you doing this approach? Are you teaching them the algorithm or, or are you doing something in between? They've had no they haven't had the prior they haven't had the prior experience of, of sense making of division and all that. What 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 are you doing with them? Um, um ideally and this is, you know, it's going to be different for every teacher in every situation. I get that. But ideally, what I'm doing is I'm taking them back to division. I'm taking them back to earlier division and I'm rebuilding that as a concept because it's not complete. Yes. Yeah? The foundation isn't there. So at that point, anything I choose to add to their, um, to their, you know, to what, to their 
knowledge of division. That's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to add to their understanding, their knowledge of division. Um, anything I add to that, I am adding on a very shaky foundation. You know, so from my point of view, I'm try. I need to firm up that foundation. And again, this goes back to Mark teaching the Mark's idea of teaching the wrong maths. If they're for me, for me personally, if they're not in a position to understand that, it's because they don't have that understanding of division. That's going to keep causing me problems. Yeah, it's going to cause it's going to cause me problems when I deal with division of fractions. It's going to cause me problems. When I want to do other things in the realm of proportion, it's going to cause me problems when I want to look at speed and time and density and all of these compound units that rely on division. That's going to keep causing me problems over and over and over again. So I'm going to go back to division and I'm going to put that foundation in place. I'm going to put that brick in place that says, you know what, let's go right back to looking at things like 12 divided by four and how I can make sense of that as a comparison. And then let's look at other division problems and how we make sense of those as a comparison. And now let's look at fraction division and how we can make sense of that as a comparison. Because anything else, I mean, Dave Hewitt writes very nicely about this. There's a paper which you can add to the show notes if you want. Um, anything else is, is working purely in the realm of memory. Mm. It's, working, it's working purely as if it's arbitrary knowledge because they don't have the model to connect it to the other things that they need to connect it to. So there's not, there's no way that they can see that as reasonable. You know, you look at fraction division for the first time and it looks nothing like, any, if you're looking at it pure, from a purely algorithmic approach, it looks nothing like any division you've ever done. Yes. You know, any division you've ever done, uh, you've never turned it into a multiplication. Why are you doing that? You know, you've never turned a fraction over. You've never reciprocal a fraction, if you want to use the proper term. Why are you doing that? You know, it looks nothing like any other division that I've ever seen before. So the only way that they can learn to do that division is if I get them to memorize it. If I get them to memorize it, those are the steps. That's the process. And I can do that. That's fine. But then again, I take back to, you know, is that, am I happy with that? Am I happy that that's, the knowledge that they are going to be heirs to you know instead can i look at it and go right well you need to understand a bit more about division before you're ready to deal with this and if i don't give you that understanding about division then or if i don't allow you to reach that understanding about division if i because i can't give it to you but if i don't allow you to reach that understanding about division that is necessary to understand why these things divide and why this process looks like it does then then actually you, you you're going to keep running into problems all through got it got it uh, you, you've i think you've sold me on that that pete i, I think um Completing the square, then. Talk me through this, because this is nice. So, again, if we've, we've got people who are driving here who, who can't see this, we've we've essentially got x squared plus 4x plus 1, um, and we're, we're, we're going to attempt to introduce students to the, the idea of completing the square. And you're doing this using um, algebra tiles. So you've got a big blue uh, square, which is an x squared tile, and then you've got 4x tiles, which are um, the same height as the x squared tile, but I believe have got a kind of 
base or a width of, of one and then you've got a one square which is uh, one unit by by one unit and you've arranged these in in, uh, in an order in an attempt to make as close as you say in the, the text as close as possible to a perfect square and we can see however we organize it there were three of these single units missing which is going to lead nicely to the to the completing the square form so my, my question here is is this is obviously a nice example that you've chosen here so we've got the four it divide the four x it halves nicely it fits nicely around the square and so on and so forth I, I take it you've chosen this um on purpose because this this is one that works quite nice for this approach would you then use a similar visual approach for the more awkward ones or would it then be a shift to the the, the kind of algorithm or the process to do it you you can do um it does i mean you can actually do it concretely if your tiles are flat you can't if you're using rods it because the stacking but you can so for example uh if you were to just go with x squared plus 3x plus something uh you can sort of stack the x tile so there's a half on one and a half on the other and i explore that a little bit in the book but there's and, and again it comes I, I talk about this repeatedly in the book there comes a point where the the model stops making sense. Mm. It stops helping you make sense of what is happening. You know, and at that point, you you've got one of two situations. You've either got to use a new model if there's a new model that's better, or you've got to have reached the point where you're ready to work without the model. So, as I say in the book, and the, you know, it's not in this image, but it's in the book in a larger. Um, in the in, in the pages several times actually i wouldn't blame teachers at all and i think it would be a perfectly sensible decision if all you did while you are making sense of completing the square is stick to um even power even coefficients of x um and you allowed you allowed though the use of those to help make sense of why the coefficient of x gets halved because that's the key thing here. You know, the key thing here is what the, the, when you complete the square, there are two sort of key things that we need to recognize that the coefficient of x gets halved and that the, um, you know, you need a certain, you either, you either a certain amount under or a certain amount over a complete square. So you're either subtracting or you're adding a constant term from this, you know, this, squared bracket so i wouldn't blame teachers at all and i think it would be a perfectly sensible decision if you stuck with even power even coefficients of x in order to make sense of why it halves and that's what this image is designed to do you know it's designed to help you or both of these images because there are two like you say um as to why they half, why you have to half the number of x, because you end up, no matter how you go about doing this, you end up with half your x's horizontally on the top or bottom or both of the square, and you end up with half of your x's put you know, vertically attached to one or the other side of the square or both sides of the square. And so, you know, this is aiming to help students make sense of why do why are we always halving the number of x now i wouldn't necessarily introduce it by saying we're always going to halve the number of x but i'm what i'm trying to get to is the them either recognizing through me prompting or through their they're just naturally becoming aware of the fact that the number of x is always being halved and so therefore the number that's the second number in my bracket is always going to be half the number of x you know the 
the part attached to the x along both the width and the length of the square is always going to be half the coefficient of x. If I can reach that awareness, then actually, again, we've made sense of it. And now we've made sense of it, we can apply it to anything. You know, so I can apply it to something with 3x, is the, is, you know, with 3 as the coefficient of x, because I understand that it's going to have to halve. But I might need to, with some students or with a lot of students, actually look at that visually because they'll say, they might not make sense of that. They might say, well, I can't halve it anymore. You know, now if a kid's telling you you can't halve three, there's an issue there. <laughs> there's an issue there, isn't there, that, that you know and you need to pick up and you need to deal with. But actually, I might choose to come back to the model in order to, in order to, highlight that in order to explore that i might choose to give them back the algorithms and say well how could we create a total of three x's where we are still halving and things like that and it is possible to do but it does get a little tiny little bit clunky yes um and so you know generally for me i would avoid it where i could but i wouldn't be scared of having to do it if i felt that it was needed Got it. Fantastic. Um, last last couple of questions on the um, on this kind of uh, on your book in a sense. And the first was a, a question that came in on on Twitter. Um, should you always start with the concrete when introducing a concept? I, I so I, I saw this question on Twitter and I gave it some thought and I struggled to find a situation where I wouldn't want to. Uh, if it's something that is new that I want to make sense of, then generally I'm going to need to have something to think about. In fact, I was at um, Teach Math North Ants uh, Wednesday, last week on Wednesday, and Andrew Jeffrey was there uh, doing the keynote. And one thing he said, which resonated with me and with the room, is if you're going to ask kids to think, you've got to give them something to think about. You know, so actually, if I'm going to ask you to think about this new idea, I'm going to need to give you something to think about. Now, that might, I suppose, feasibly, it might be an image, it might be uh, an abstract calculation, or but if the, if it's an abstract calculation in a concept you've never seen before, are you are you going to be able to think about that effectively? Are you going to be able to make sense of that effectively? I suppose there are, there, it's feasibly possible. Uh, but for me, you are much more likely to, likely to be able to make sense and have something to think about if you've got something there in front of you you can work with, that you can manipulate, that you can change and see what happens, you know, that sort of thing. So that might be Quisenerods. It might be, you know, you've mentioned Desmos and uh, GeoGebra. It might, be, it might be that. You're doing actually exactly the same thing. You know, kids can, kids can change things. Kids can move things. And they can see what happens. They can make sense of that, of, of how changes affect things and make sense of what is happening there. Uh, and so that's, you know, to me, that's exactly the same sort of thing. So I, I, I can't think of a situation where I wouldn't want to introduce an entirely new and alien concept without a manipulative or something similar to hand. Got it. Fantastic. And fi final question, Peter, on your book before we move to your reflections. Um, is, is there any, it's a hard one, this, but is there any one thing you'd want a teacher to take away from your book? Well, what's the dream here that, that they read your book and, and what, what do you want them thinking or doing as a, as a result of it? Uh, 
So, yeah, the big thing I want people to, to understand about the use of manipulatives and the use of imagery is that they are there to support sense making. They are there to, uh, to, so that you can give students access to something that will allow them to make sense of a concept. And, you know, this whole um, idea of whether you do that through explicit instruction or through inquiry or whatever else is, is kind of a side issue in that regard to me because you know that comes down to am i helping you make sense of something by sharing my reasoning and my sense of this with you or am i purely allowing you to develop that sense on your own given suitable prompts or whatever else and people will you know some people are good at doing the first some people are good at doing the second some people need to get better at doing one or the other but we've all got ways of doing that so whether we choose to do that by giving them a prompt to follow or sharing our reasoning with them, as long as it as long as it's the end the end goal is allowing them to make sense of what it is they're doing, what it is they're seeing, the concept that they're supposed to, supposed to be thinking about, then I'm happy, and that's what that's what the manipulative the image is designed to do. So. The one big thing I would want people to take away from that is that those manipulatives, those images are there to help students make sense of them and make sense of a concept. OK, and that also that, that sense, that understanding should be flexible enough that it can accommodate different styles and types of problem within that the domain of that concept. And so, you you know, you've got to think about using multiple representations, multiple ways of thinking about an idea, even simple ideas. You know, and Mark shares something about subtraction. I don't know if you've seen it. I saw it at his, his, his heads of mass um, session that he runs, that if kids only have a way of thinking about subtraction as takeaway, they tend to be the ones that perform really, really low by the time they get to 16. Yes. So you've got the, you've got this, you've got this, you know, you've got this thing where you're first introducing a very basic operation and, you know, in year one. And if they stuck, if they get stuck with that's the only way I can think about subtraction, then actually 15, you know, 13 years, no, what is it? 11 years later, 11 years later. They, they're not performing. And that's because they, you know, they don't have this enough sense of what subtraction is to have accessed the rest of the curriculum effectively. And they can't connect that to so many other parts, you know, so many other problem types where it's not taking away, you know, even something as simple as finding the difference between two numbers is not taking one thing away from another. It is a different way of thinking about subtraction. So they need that flexible understanding if they're going to progress through the curriculum. And multiple representations is a really nice way, a really good way, a really effective way, according to the research, a really effective way of developing that understanding, that sense making. So representations are about sense making. You know, manipulatives are about sense making. Use many of them to make help make sense of the mathematics would be the one big takeaway I would hope people would get. Got it. Fantastic.
Right, Pete, let's turn to your reflections and then we'll hand over to you for your, for your big three. So first first question, what, what piece of research or book has most significantly influenced your thinking or your approach to teaching? Yeah, it's an interesting one, this one, um, because it's, it's actually really hard because it's not been one big thing. It's been a series of very small nudges that has led me to where I am. Uh, but um, one thing that one thing that I can point to is is the book Thinkers um, from, the, you know, it's published by the ATM um, from Anne Watson and John Mason and uh, Liz and Chris Bills, who uh, and it's just just in terms of prompting to go beyond the obvious. You know, some of the some of the question prompts that they use in that book. Give me a peculiar example. Can you do this in a different way? Uh, that sort of thing, which are really powerful for students, but actually it's really powerful for us to think of as teachers as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the the sort of impact of research and things I've read of people I've spoken to has has been each one individually has been small, but cumulatively it, it, it amounts to quite a large thing to shape where I am today. But that one definitely stands out in my past and in my history. Fantastic. Great, great answer. Great book, that one. Um, second one, Pete, what's an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Yeah, so uh, I've probably alluded to this several times, actually, and I wouldn't say I've changed my mind fully, but certainly softened on is this idea of teaching procedurally, teaching to the test. Um, because, you know, in the past, even just a couple of years ago, uh, I might have been quite, I mean, the word, I, the word that comes to mind is almost rabid, not quite rabid, but, you know, <laughs> very, very of a mind that we've got to teach for understanding. We've got to teach kids to make sense of things. If we're not doing that, then we're not teaching maths, you know, that sort of thing. And I, you know, I would, I would have that argument with anybody who wanted to stand up long enough and listen to me speak long enough to, <laughs> to have that argument with. Um, but, you know, I've softened that in the last couple of years, certainly. I wouldn't say I've changed my mind on it completely. I would, you know, I think that is what mathematics teaching should be about. But at the same token, I recognise that actually schools are under pressure and kids are under pressure. You know, kid, we, we place a lot of emphasis in this country on a number that we assign to a child at 16 in terms of their future opportunities in terms of what we what we will then in most cases you know there's always exceptions to the rule but in most cases what we then allow them to go and do with their lives so you know and and certainly in the in the next stage of their life and so from my point of view the uh you know i've softened from that in terms of if you've got to take this and drill it and teach it in order to get it to, you know, and you think that's going to help get a kid over the grade five threshold or whatever else, you know, the grade four threshold, which means that they can go on and do what they want to do, do it. And, you know, and similarly, you know, I had this, this discussion with, uh, Julia test maths quite recently. You know, if you've got kids, uh, who have come with 11 years of not being able to really do maths, make sense of maths and everything else, and you've got two hours a week for a year to try and get them, to a point where they need because they need that for their next stage then you know do what you need to do i'm not yes. gonna i'm not gonna argue with you on that and i'm not gonna try and browbeat you into my way of thinking on that 
That's very sensible, Pete. I like that. And final question from me before I hand over to you. What do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now? Uh, yeah, this was, this was the easiest question to answer out of all of them for me uh, because it was how much it's how much better it's possible to be if you actually take the time to think about it. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I reflect on my career as a, as a 13 year journey and I'm quite embarrassed, similar to, to the admissions you make in your book, but I'm quite embarrassed to say that for perhaps the first five or six years, I didn't really think about teaching maths at all. Yeah. <laughs> I thought about, I thought about, uh, how to teach kids a bit. Uh, you know, and how to manage behavior and how to do these things. Uh, but I just taught maths in the way that I'd always been taught in the way the book says I should teach it and things like that. And I didn't really stop and think about, you know, what I was doing in terms of teaching mathematics. I, th- I was thinking in the realms of general pedagogy. And actually, when I had time to slow down or when I made when I had time and made time, because it's a bit of both. Uh, but when I had time to sort of slow down and really think about and when I was prompted to really think about, you know, what are you trying to do here? What are you trying to achieve? What is it that you want out of these kids in terms of their mathematical knowledge and understanding? Then then actually that's you know, that was that was a really important point in my in my journey. So if I could go back and give myself that point a lot earlier, then that's what I would do. Fantastic. And now, Pete, it is time to hand over to you for your big three. Now, there'll be links to all of these on the show notes. But if you want to take listeners through three particular websites or blog posts that you'd recommend that they check out. So go for it, Pete. What's your big three? Yeah, big three are all websites, actually. Uh, and the first one is probably teaching grandma to suck eggs for your viewers. But it is www.twitter.com <laughs> because I owe so much of the last sort of four or five years to that. It's it, Absolutely. It's, it's power to connect people. I was talking to Mark about this the other day through Twitter, actually. But it's power to connect people is, is nothing like what I've experienced in the previous 11 years of my career before using it or about 11 years of my career before using it. You know, uh, Mark talked about the teacher centers and things like that in the past. Um, but they were I, I was I clearly miss either missed those or they were gone before I arrived because this is the most connected I've ever felt to other math teachers, other teachers in general in my entire career is the last sort of three, four years that I've been using Twitter. Uh, so that's my first. Uh, the second one is www.atm.org.uk. Um, a, because I'm a member of atm.org.uk. Um, so I'm a member of the Association of Teacher Mathematics, but actually because of the amount of thinking that has already been done and is there. You know, you can go back into the old MT articles, you can go back into in the into some of the some books and things like that that have been written by some of the really great math educators of the last fifty years or before. And um you know, to, to get access to that. If I was gonna talking about the previous one, if I was going to prompt myself to go back and think more about what I was doing, then there's no better place to start thinking about maths teaching more than to engage with some of the material that ATM have got there. Uh, so that's my second one. My third one is mathspot.com because it's a site that I use literally every day in my teaching. 
uh, you know, in, in terms of the, the questions, in terms of the obviously the virtual manipulatives is a big one for me, but there's so much more to it than that site. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely the third one that I would say to all teachers, if you've never been on it, go and have a look because it, you know, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, the sort of stuff that Jonathan puts on there. And then I know that's a big three, but I must also mention number four, which is the Crown House publishing website where you can find my book. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. My book. Yeah. Visible maths, uh, is the, is there on the Crown House website or you can go to Amazon either way that works. Uh, and find my book along with a host of other books on that site. So I know you said big three, but I can't, I had to mention those three and I can't get away without mentioning one more time the book oh. and the site. I like that. I mean, you started with a plug, you've ended with a plug. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. Um, well, all that remains for me to do is, is to thank you, Pete. So first off, thank you for your time today. I mean, we've, I don't know how long the, the finished episode after our edit it's going to be, but we've certainly been talking for over three hours now and it's, and it's been, it's been fascinating. We, we've covered loads of ground. I love, I love hearing about, I'm so pleased you chose the year seven kind of sequencing of, of, of lessons to talk about because that, that was fascinating. And then always great to hear from heads of departments about different techniques they use and mistakes. And then, yeah, I've, I've been looking forward to it for ages um, since I was given a preview copy to, to talking about your, your book because, again, I, I, found, I found it challenging, um, Pete, because it's, it's not how I, it's not how I teach, it's not how, how I approach things and particularly the fraction one. And it's just given me a lot of food for thought. It's I'm on a bit of a journey here in terms of visual stuff. And you, you've really added to my kind of thought processes along with, with prior conversations with, with Bernie and Helen. So I thought that was wonderful. And the other thing I just wanted to thank you about is for, uh, as many listeners will know, I'm a maths advisor for the TES. And I think my all time favorite resource still remains your Brockington college maths homework <laughs> booklet. I, I don't think I've done a talk in the last three years without uh, flagging them up that I mentioned them in my book. They're my single, favorite source for for low stakes quizzes they're absolutely phenomenal they'll be i mean i'm sure every teacher i mean they must have been downloaded millions of times i'm sure every teacher in the country's got them but i'll put a link to them in the show notes as well so pete for your book for giving up time today and for the best resource i've ever seen on tes thank you very much no thank you craig it's been brilliant really enjoy talking to you So there you have it. There was my conversation with Pete Mattick, maths teacher, director of maths, and now author of Visible Maths. Um, I really hope you enjoyed that one. Again, I found it a fascinating conversation. There was kind of three aspects to it. There was the planning aspect, putting together a sequence of lessons, which I always love talking about. And I think it's interesting comparing Pete's approach to other approaches we've heard. We've got Naveen's, who's kind of on the extreme of this kind of prescriptive with the, with the dialogue pre-written and so on and so forth. And then we've got other approaches that we've heard about. Again, we've got Chris Bolton, we've got Andrew, Blair, we got Helen Hindle. It, again, it just blows my mind the different approaches people have to, to planning lessons out. So um, I hope you enjoyed that. Then we had the bit about running a maths department, which again, always fascinates me. Now, I've never been a head of department. As I said in the interview, I, I, I don't think I ever want to be a head of department just because there are certain aspects of the job that just don't interest me and I think would detract from other things that, that interest me far more and that I'm better at. Um, and then finally, and this was my favourite part of the interview, we got to deep dive into, into Pete's book. And I really like the approach, the three different ways Pete, Pete's has, sorry, the three topics Pete chose and the, the models and the visual way he has of introducing them. So I hope you found it useful. Anyway, takeaway time. Um, 
I've got a, quite a few things to, to, to reflect on here. The, the first is mixed attainment. Now, this is a flipping minefield, this, and I'm always wary before I say anything here, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, as I said to Peter, I've never never taught for a long period of time in, in mixed entertainment classes, uh, but it fascinates me. Um, I, I don't think I could do it without adequate training and experience. I certainly couldn't do the kind of lesson that, that Helen Hindle talks about or Andrew Blair talks about. But I thought what was interesting here was that Pete's approach to planning and teaching isn't that vastly different to, to, to my approach. And when Pete starts talking about using the in what I call intelligent practice, these intelligently varied sequence of practice questions, Pete was still of the opinion that, that that's suitable for, for mixed attainment. Uh, and, and I agree. I agree. Because, and I hope this comes, comes across, uh, I hope this comes out right. Um, whilst it's true that all students are doing the same work in the sense that they're all working through the same 10 questions or 15 questions or whatever it is, their experiences are the same, uh, are not the same, and the time it takes them to spot the connections and so on is not the same either. So for me, that's where the differentiation comes in. Differentiation by time and crucially differentiation by experience. It's the same work, but it's a different amount of time. It's a different amount of experience. Now that can only happen if those questions are, to use my language, intelligently varied, if it, if it fits the mold of intelligent practice, because otherwise it's just practice. If it's just kind of 10 disconnected questions on whatever, adding fractions or finding the mean, kids just work through them. And sure, you can make them a bit harder as you get, get towards the end, and there's a, set, a certain type of differentiation there. But for me, if you want this differentiation by experience, then if you can have those connections in there where questions are linked together, where it's, it's, it's revealing a, an inherent structure within a particular concept, then that's where those different experiences can come from. Because students are going to spot connections and understand connections at different times, at different levels, be able to articulate it in different ways. And therefore, it is fine to be able to give the same workout to students because they're going to be getting different experiences. And that's something I'll be digging into um, if, if you come to listen to me talk anytime in the next um, kind of couple of months or so. And I'll probably write about it at some point because differentiation is still such a hot topic, such a thorny issue for, for, for teachers. And there seems to be this, this belief that it has to involve giving different work to students, which for me is just it's completely unmanageable and also leads us to make some dodgy decisions. How do we decide who gets the different work, who gets what work when we move kids on to different work? I'd much rather do it this way. Same work, but different experiences. Um, the second thing I wanted to, to feedback from on in, in this takeaway is whole class feedback. Um, again, as I said to Pete, it's been a game changer for me. It's the, the, the days of writing, flipping personalized feedback for hours on a Sunday and, and that feedback getting crapper and crapper as I got through this pile of books. Like it starts off, it's, it's a beautiful paragraph explaining what a child should do. By the time it's to, to book 25, it's like, just get on with it. Just get it right. I'm at exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I'm absolutely fuming. Whereas whole class feedback, just kind of taking taking a, a, a work, reading through it, picking out two or three misconceptions, two or three areas of weakness, and then tackling it as a class, whether it's modeling it, whether it's uh, providing more practice, whether it's going into deeper problem solving. For me, that's the way forward, both from a time management perspective and a usefulness perspective uh, as well. Um, but again, I was pleased that, that Pete tackled this. What do we do about the kids who don't need that feedback, who've, who've demonstrated in their work that they understand it? 
Well, firstly, they're not going to be at a major disadvantage if they do a bit more practice, but also there's lots of other useful things they can do. There's my one. Think of two different ways to explain to somebody who's struggling how to understand this. And then Pete's one. I really like this one. Write me a harder question than this. And you can imagine students answering that difficult question themselves and then challenging another student who's finished to answer it and so on. You know, that kind of stuff for me is useful. It's not gimmicky. It's useful and it makes whole class feedback work. Um, the other thing, a couple more, um, order of operations. Uh, before we get into the kind of visual stuff, just the fact that I like that, that Pete does examples that work, where uh, sorry, examples where the order matters and examples where the order doesn't matter. I think the danger that um, I've, the trap I've fallen into in the past with, with order of operations is I always present uh, students with examples where the order does matter. So it's your standard ones where, you know, your addition comes first from left to right, but you have to do your multiplication and so on. But it fits into this idea of examples and non-examples that I'm absolutely obsessed with. So the the only way or one of the one of the ways for me for students to fully understand something is to present them with examples where it works, but also examples where it doesn't work. So I like that. Give students questions where, yeah, sure, actually it doesn't matter which order they do things, but then here's one where the order does matter. And if you can convince them in a visual way that the order does matter and learn how to distinguish between the two, then even better. But examples and non-examples, absolute banker for me these days. I, I, I cannot believe I taught for so long without that. And then we turn to, to Pete's book. Um, it's a wonderful book. It really, it really is. I only have books on this show that I enjoy. There's been a couple of awkward occasions where I've, I've read a book and I thought, uh, uh, um, didn't like it. Didn't think I could get it. I, I couldn't like genuinely have a conversation saying I enjoyed it. So, so the episode was cancelled. But that's <laughs> luckily that wasn't the case with with Pete's because I genuinely enjoyed Pete's book. Um, the big kind of takeaway I, I got from it and and got from our conversation was this idea of sense making. This idea that these visual approaches, and I know Pete tells me off for saying visual approach, but I, he, he can't chip in here because it's just me on this takeaway, so I'm going to stick with it. These visual approaches are really useful to understand why a procedure works. Um, and the completing the square one's um, nice for that. But then we switch to the algorithm because as Pete says, and this is a quote from him in this conversation, there comes a point where the model stops making sense, stops helping. And for me, it comes in completing the square whenever, again, we've got an, an odd number of X is um, or we've got like a negative and it, it just becomes it comes more cumbersome more confusing and we don't want the model to feel forced we want the model to serve a purpose to be useful to students and um, but the other thing I wanted to say about these models, and I think this is something that gets lost, and um, people will know if you've read my book or heard me speak in the last year or so, about my example problem pair approach to, to worked examples. The idea of presenting an example, going through it in silence, using silent teacher, then it's narration and annotation, then it's copying to books, then it's your turn, and then it's show call. Um, that approach doesn't mean that you can't use these, these models, these visualizations. It works just as well for me. So if I was teaching completing the square, I'm probably going to take Pete's model and I'm going to demonstrate that in silence to the students. Then I'm going to narrate and annotate over the top. Then they're going to copy it down. Then I'm going to give them a similar problem, a completing the square problem, and ask them to create a model for that for your turn. Then we're going to do it in show call. So for me, these visual approaches are 
perfectly suited to example problem pair, just as more kind of algorithmic or procedural approaches are. So I just wanted to make that clear. For me, example problem pair doesn't say to a teacher, you have to do it in this particular way. You can do it in any way you want, multiple representations and so on and so forth. For me, example problem pair is just a really effective way for me of conveying the method or an idea to students and then getting them to practice and so on. Um, final couple of things. Um, I think it's important just to reiterate this. There, there aren't many quick fixes in Pete's book and that's not a criticism at all. There are some things that you can use straight away, some nice models and completing the squares one. But other ones like, like the division of fractions, they need months, if not years of work to get students to a point where they can understand that. And it was the same with my conversation with Bernie. Like when I was listening to him explain um, uh, how to use counters for, for why two negatives together equal a positive and why a negative times a negative is a positive. I was thinking to myself, can I use that tomorrow with a class who's struggling with this? Well, probably not because I need, it, it takes years to get them to that point. And, and Bernie talked about the concept of zero pairs being fundamental. Pete talked about the idea of, of getting back to one being fundamental for the division of fractions. And unless students know that, then they've got no chance of understanding the model or, or the visual way. So it's a decision a teacher's got to make. And that's why I asked Pete, fair enough, if he had a year 11, two months from their GCSE, he's probably going to teach them the, the kind of procedure. If he has a year seven and he's got five years, he's going to teach them the visual way. But that's why I asked him, if you had a year 10 class, what are you doing? And Pete's still doing the visual way. I, I'm not so sure. We're with all the things that they've got to fit in, and I know it's bad, and as Mark McCourt says, it's teaching them the wrong mathematics if they can't understand that. But I'm not so sure I've got the time to go back to, to division, go back to the basics. But maybe that's my failing as a teacher. Maybe that's not me understanding just how important these, these fundamentals are. So that's something I need to mull over. But certainly the, the fact that there aren't that many quick fixes, but that's not a bad thing. This is a long-term approach to teaching mathematics. And finally, now, how many times has this come up in the in the takeaway? How before why? The good old how before why. I love talking about this. And Pete made some good points here. So Pete is teaching the why before the how pretty much all the time. Again, he, the disclaimer there, if he's got a year 11, a couple of months away and so on and so forth, um, he may do it the other way around um, or leave out the why entirely. But Pete made a couple of points that I thought was really, really interesting and really important. If you're going to do the why first, firstly, you need a connected curriculum. You need something that makes sense. So by the time students get to division of fractions, they've, they've understood the why of all the prerequisites that came before it. So they understand fractions, they understand division. Uh, you probably need standard approaches that everyone does within your department because if students are moving from class to class and they haven't had this kind of foundational knowledge in there they don't understand the why of all the prerequisites it's going to be problematic and for Pete if those two things are in place then the why is no more difficult than the how and that's always been my problem if the why is more difficult, then I'll do the how first. I'll get kids feeling confident and successful. But Pete's arguing that the why is no more difficult as long as students have got this kind of background, this foundational knowledge and experience. However, as I said in the interview, when I'm looking at that division of fractions, I'm thinking, sure, that, that may be why it works. And, and But my kids aren't going to understand that. I'm struggling to flip and understand that. But is that my lack of experience? And it's certainly my lack of students' experience with this particular approach. They haven't been on the journey that Pete talks about. And unless they have been on that journey, then that becomes a really, really difficult thing for them to understand. And the point I make in the book and the point I make when I, when I give talks is that 
If you spend half an hour or whatever trying to convince students why something works and it's really complex, you've not just lost half an hour. And that half an hour is important. It's, you know, it's an opportunity cost. It's half an hour you could have been doing something else. But you're not just half an hour behind. Potentially you've lost them for that topic because potentially they've given up and thought and think this is a yet another area of maths that I don't understand. So if my students haven't been on that journey, I'm going to need to make a big decision as a teacher which route I go down. Do I try and develop this foundational knowledge? Have I got the time to do that? Have I got the experience and expertise to do that? Or do I just try, try and do it by teaching the students a method that works, a method that they're successful at, that they're confident at, and then I can potentially return to the why, perhaps using Pete's approach, perhaps using a different approach at a later stage. As I say, I know there'll be teachers screaming at me saying, you're mentally, you're absolutely off your head. Kids have to know why, otherwise maths is a disconnected series of procedures and all this kind of stuff. But I'm just basing it on my experience with working with students who haven't had the best mathematical experience. There's nothing I can do to go back in time to change that. So when I get them, I just want to make them as successful and confident as I can. Anyway, whew, as you can see by that, lots of flipping things for me to reflect on. Um, as I say, check out the book. You will not be disappointed. You're straight into it. There's no waffle. You're straight into visual, visual, visual all the way through it. So it's a fantastic read. So all that remains for me to do is to thank a few people. Firstly, and obviously thank you to Pete for giving up his time to speak to me. I think it was three. We certainly spoke for over three hours and I think this edit will come out over three hours in, in the end. I haven't taken much out and I hope this stuff on department made sense and wasn't ruined too much by the... Um, slightly dodgy connections and, and so on and so forth. So massive thank you to, to, to Pete. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. I haven't had too many complaints about that recently. Perhaps people are just, they're just used to it by now. So, so nobody slags it off too much. And finally, massive, massive, massive thank you to you, the loyal listener. The, the only reason I keep doing these is because people listen and people seem to find them useful. Um, I do them for selfish reasons so I can learn from, from guests, but I could just do that down the pub without the kind of editing and so on and so forth. The reason I put the hours in for these is because people seem to enjoy them and find them useful. So please help spread the word. And if you could do me two favors, that'd be superb. The first is if you haven't reviewed it, if you could review it on either iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from, it just helps it reach a wider audience. And secondly, on the on the same note if you have um, reviewed it the next thing i'd love you to do is just to suggest an episode to a friend suggest an episode to a colleague just say why don't you check out this episode it might be the robert bjork episode it may be doug lemov it may be dylan william part one or two it may be ollie lovell or it may be this one with pete mattock recommend an episode to a friend again it just <coughs> excuse me I'm dying here, just gets the podcast out to um, a wider audience. Anyway, that's enough for me. I've rattled on far too much. I really hope you enjoyed that one. I've got tons of amazing guests coming up, including, of course, Naveen Rizvi, part two, and Gemma Sherwood, part two. And Mark McCourt's got to come on here again um, because Flipping Egg, he's dominating these podcasts. He, he comes up on every flipping episode and I need I need to dig into it. He No way is he telling me I can't say five subtract three. I'm not having any of that. So let's get Mark McCourt back on this show as well. Anyway, okay. Hope you enjoyed this one. You take care of yourselves and bye for now.